The wheel of time turns and ages come and go, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth, and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. In one age, called the Third Age by some, an age yet to come, an age long past, a wind rose in the mountains of mist. The wind was not the beginning. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the Wheel of Time. But it was a beginning. The Wheel of Time turns and podcasts come and go. Welcome to Wattcast, a Wheel of Time book and watch club. We are reading through Robert Jordan's epic fantasy series and watching Amazon's Wheel of Time TV show run by Rafe Judkins, who we might be talking about a bit more than usual this week. I'm Caleb Wimble, and with me are Katie Jarvis. Hello. And Keely Frank. Hello. Dan is out for this week and will hopefully be back joining us next time. You can find us all at Wattcast.net and support the show at Patreon.com slash Wattcast. Your support means a lot. Even $2 at the Two Rivers tier helps. Join us on Patreon at the $5 Tarvalon tier and you'll get access to special bonuses where we talk about things like Wheel of Time short stories and spinoffs, novels and games, other failed TV pilots, and adjacent fantasy series like Dune. Uh, this week in particular, we would like to shout out uh, two wonderful new Patreons uh, or patrons on our Patreon, one of whom is anonymous, the other of whom is Trevor Fail, subscribed at the $5 Tar Valentier, joining the White Tower and getting access to those bonus episodes. Thank you so much, Trevor. Uh, all your support at everyone's support uh, really, really makes a big difference. If you are listening and would like to email us questions, comments, or corrections, you can do so at wa- contact at wattcast.net with the subject line questions. We'll answer those here on the show. So uh, we've had kind of a whirlwind couple of weeks of episodes with the show being on the same time as the book chapters. Last time we talked about episode four of the Wheel of Time TV show, The Dragon Reborn. We talked adjacent to that about chapters 31 to 35 of the first book in the series, The Eye of the world. Random Matt made a perilous journey to Camelin, beset by dark friends on every side. Uh, this week, we are finding out if the great city of Camelin will offer safety or is yet another trap laid along their path by the Dark One and his agents. Similar events took place in episodes three to four of the TV show. With some differences, we saw a dramatic showdown with Loghain, the self-proclaimed Dragon Reborn, who we have only really known in the background of the novel The Eye of the World so far. In that showdown, Nynaeve's incredible strength in the One Power was revealed, quote, as radiant as the sun. Uh, so again, this time we're going we're to start by delving into chapters 36 to 40 of the novel, all of which I think take place from... Oh, no, that's not true. I was about to say they all take place from Random Matt's perspective, but no, no, we, we sneak over to the goings-on in the White Cloak camp uh, from some of our other characters' point of view. But we do start with Rand and Matt here in Camelin in chapter 36, Web of the Pattern. Katie, do you want to give us the, the general lowdown on what happens in this one? Sure. Um, in Web of the Pattern, uh, Matt refuses to leave his room in the inn, and he seems to be growing more suspicious of people and just like in less of a good place um since Shadar Lagoth. Um Rand meets uh o- Ogier. I know in the TV show he tells you how to properly pronounce mm-hmm. it, but is that right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I I think so, yeah. O- 
Oh, it's it's very close to ogre, right? Like right. ogier, o- and that's that's the, that's the thing. He uh, does. Yeah. And named L- loyal. <laughs> Loyal. Now I grew I grew up calling him loyal or like loyal with the emphasis on the second one the entire time. I think I was wrong the whole time because they say loyal in the show and I looked back in the book glossary and I mean the book glossary is sometimes different from what Jordan says but it says loyal in here too like like the personality attribute. Loyal, yeah. So. yeah. Okay. Well, I I really like this character. Um so we meet Loyal uh in the library and he gives us some some lovely speeches there. Um and um, let's see, Rand mistakes him for a Trolloc, and apparently lots of people do. And Loyal mistakes mm-hmm. Rand for an ailment, um, which upsets Rand. Um, and then he di- identifies him as a, a Taverine, uh, someone who bends the pattern into a new shape, which I think is kind of cool. Yeah, so um, lots of important character stuff just kind of laid out plainly. I, I like the way... <laughs> Uh, I, there's almost a sense, especially meeting him in a library, where Loyal just shows up as this like knowledgeable lore master who's going to explain things that have been hinted at just in like really plain language, and that you know Rand's going to be in denial about. And it's it's almost funny. Um, one of the things Dan wanted to mention not being here was how 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 much he likes that we're getting an introduction to these uh you know different fantasy species or 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 races whatever we want to call them here uh distinct from humans and giving it more of that otherworldly flavor but it's so low-key the way he meets loyal and and it's so uh and loyal is such a such a down for being like you know somebody who's never been out in the world before a very very just congenial like down to earth like just says whatever he's thinking about kind of person lays it on the table um and it's just so low you know he's in a library here's some knowledge uh talking about hundreds year old history getting a lot of the the world building and background stuff here uh even this is such a minor thing, but I was thinking about his, huh, oh, you know, Rand observes the shelves must have held three or 400 books more than he had ever seen in one place at once. What this inn is like a, a book lover's paradise, I guess. That, that is like an enormous library even today for some, I, you know, like a hotel bookshelf might have like, I don't know, a dozen books on the thing. I feel like I've been to some places that had a larger room, but they must have a, they must have printing presses, right? Because otherwise mm-hmm. pre-printing press, this would be like a king's ransom uh, worth of books, like a, a literal fortunes to have to have 300 books on I don't know, this random interesting detail yeah when i i saw that i was like <laughs> is that a lot because <laughs> i have over 600 in my apartment and i was like oh, <laughs> holy <shit."> cow <laughs> <laughs> i was like oh okay you know way to call out my enjoyment of capitalism here um they have to have something because i feel like in a in a fantasy universe where there's any kind of magic if they don't have at least bare bones printing press or typewriter or mm-hmm. something what the hell like <laughs> that's kind of the basics i think you'd need maybe the i said i just um just use their their magic to to scroll the books into existence i don't know right, right. <laughs> we get get into harry potter territory <laughs> of like just not having basic everyday uh tools because uh there there's some spell for every situation you like loyal you said katie what do we what do you think of this interaction in general like uh, in the, this chapter and, and the things that we do learn here i liked his perspective as like this older creature that kind of looks at humans as being so um chaotic and um mm-hmm. disorganized and their lives move so quickly um i i always kind of like that that type of perspective um 
I, I liked the whole speech he gave about the groves um, mm -hmm. and just the fact that, you know, he kind of had been expecting the world to be a bit more preserved than it was uh, and that humans and, you know, other creatures had sort of um, destroyed it and, and built it up too much. So I, I liked his little speeches there. Um, I don't know, something about him almost reminded me of, um, what are the trees called in Lord of the Rings? The, uh, you beat me to it. The Ents are our, our obligatory Jordan, fellowship Jordanism here, yeah. or Two Towers Jordanism in this case. So there yeah. I was. And of course, I love the Ents too. And um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he even has the hasty line, right? He's like, you humans are so hasty, yeah. so erratic. And it's like, okay, okay young tree beard, uh, <laughs> tending to sacred groves. Um, Although I do like the fact that he's basically like they treat him like a child and he's an adolescent for no gear, even though he's like, mm, I forget, like 97 years old or, or or something like that. And they don't think he was he's he's basically run away from home. He was not old enough or didn't get the council's permission to leave the steading. So he's. Uh, despite having all all this wisdom and like talking about things that happened generations and generations ago, he, he's a hot-headed ogier. <laughs> I liked how Rand and him are sort of on the same page in that regard. Like they're kind of young travelers out in a world that they don't quite understand um, or feel comfortable in. So I, I liked that little camaraderie between them. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, I did it's immediately um, a warm, fuzzy dynamic. It's just very, at least for me, it's very hard not to be like, oh yeah, I forgot how much I like having Loyal in the story and him just showing up um, makes it feel more, maybe, I, I don't, I don't know. Like it, it just makes it be feel like more of a cozy adventure story in a, in a way, having, having him along for a little bit, even though he kind of shows up here and then he's in the background for the next couple of chapters. I like his little, um, his little aphorisms like, I'm afraid they'll say I put a long handle on my axe and, and all that stuff. Um, talks about how the cities, they built these cities for people, uh, for, for humans after the breaking of the world. Um, the things he said, Katie, about the land going against itself and all the observations of the ways in which humans have kind of destroyed all the beautiful things that the Ogier left for them and and, uh, and ruined the, the harmony that had going on. Um, He's very upset. He's very worried about giving offense all the time. Every time he says something about humans and he's like, oh, shoot. I don't know if I should have said that. Um, there's he has this really sad moment where he's talking about all the groves gone, all the memories gone, all the dreams dead. And Rand has I feel like at this point, this it almost feels like one of the more clear statements of principle and character we've gotten from Rand where he's like, you can't give up loyal. You can't ever give up. If you give up, you might as well be dead. And and it's just, and you know, sits down in his chair dramatically, like feeling embarrassed about his outburst. But it's at this point, I feel like a kind of un unread like thing up until now to even just say anything passionately or with <laughs> with conviction. We're starting to get more uh, of Rand coming out as a person, I feel like, in these chapters and, and less just like a bundle of adolescent neuroses and um, and judgments and an internal, uh, I don't know, may, may, maybe more of the show Rand. Um, and and Loyal gives a gives a quote that's an Aiel quote, uh, I guess, and uh, and is a surprise that Rand doesn't know it because they haven't had that whole bit about Rand not knowing or thinking he's Aiel yet. He says, uh, till shade is gone, till water is gone, into the shadow a teeth bared, screaming defiance with the last breath to spit in Sightbinder's eye on the last day. Yes, that's the way of your kind, isn't it? Um, 
and the quote he gives here and has all this stuff about uh about the I the Aiel pain in uh Avanderosa being lost, but then uh, hearing he's from Manetherin and getting into all that, he gets into the Taveran stuff you brought up, Katie, which uh this is the first place that's mentioned, right? Because Moraine doesn't tell them that in in the novel, even though we have a sense of that early in the show. Uh what what did y'all make of we had we had earlier conversations right about how how literal the stuff about the the wheel is and, and what the pattern means and all that and we're getting some pretty literal interpretations of it from loyal here thoughts on all that so i wrote down just like the what i guess what it says in the back about the tavine is someone who the wheel of time weave all around surrounding life threads uh maybe all life threads and mm-hmm. i feel like this is confusing <laughs> Because I don't know yet who is supposed to be like super important. And it seems like each time that one of the characters gets their own chapter, it's just like mm-hmm. another like, but it's you. You're so important. <laughs> Egwene is the most powerful in the fucking world. Nynaeve is more powerful than Egwene. So it's just like, I don't know what to think. So at this point, the more that they kind of throw at me, like, oh, here's one thing that makes you so different from everyone else. Like, uh, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, what's next? What's the, you know, we're going to jump to the next thing and fucking Perrin's going to become a werewolf. Like, what the hell's happening? It's just, it's kind of hard for me to take it all super seriously. Um, mm-hmm. Just because I am just constantly like, ooh, this means something. <laughs> I couldn't help but picture the opening to the TV series because it's just like such a literal, like I feel like they were like, oh, they read this paragraph and they were like, aha, this is what we'll do for the opening. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, there, I, I feel like I always had this sense reading the story is that where I thought this was both the Taveran thing was kind of both clever and so convenient where Jordan at some point is just like, what if I made being a protagonist of a story like a literal property of my world to explain like how the plot just works out in your favor all the time and how like all these big things seem to happen for you and all these coincidences occur that seem really unlikely. That is just something you can be in the wheel of time as it turns out where, um, where everything you do ripples out and affects the world around you and you can kind of try to change the world in big ways that other cannot, but you also can't escape like the plot finding you if you're a Taveran. The, wor- the, the pattern will, will find its way to weave around you and try to weave you into something big. And we get sort of a clarification on the future changing stuff here to where Loyal's like, there is always room for small changes but sometimes the pattern simply won't accept a big change no matter how hard you try and and sort of indicating that there is some concept of a free will outside fate in a cha- in a sense here but that there is a written fate there is a direction all the big picture stuff has to go maybe and both that our, our protagonists want to escape that whatever destiny they're given a bunch of them are like really bucking against it but also that the Dark One, it seems, or at least Baal Zaman, wants to destroy this whole idea. The notion that there is a preordained fate, wants to break the Wheel of Time somehow, stop the pattern. Um, yeah, we, we learned that Ard- Ardor Hawkwing, King Arthur, was a Taveran, so was Luz there and Kingslayer, a Kinslayer for that matter. Loyal uh, declares that he is like fascinated by this and wants to travel with them, because like, why, why wouldn't I want to travel with the main characters of the story? I've got to find, <laughs> find out what happens here. And Rand's like, are you crazy? Like, uh, did you just listen to anything I said? Everybody with us tends to get killed or caught up in all this. And Loyal is just extremely excited at, at the notion of anything happening in the world outside the studying, which I guess appropriately takes us to a chapter called um, The Long Chase, chapter 37. Keely, what goes down in this one? Do you recall? 
Yeah, so this is when um, Nynaeve sneaks up on a White Cloak camp, um, and she comes up, I think she comes up with the plan, either by herself, or I think maybe with Lan, that they find that there's a row of horses, and so they're going to have a distraction so they can try to sneak out one of the kids, Um, because I think Moraine knows one of them is in this camp, but isn't sure which one. Um, So Nynaeve sneaks in, and she finds Mm -hmm. Bella, along with some other horses, and um, she cuts the rope for the horses to release them um, while Lan is looking around the camp to see who he can find. And then is did Moraine like conjure lightning? Is that what happens? <laughs> I, I have a hard time following like what actually she's doing. I think it's light. Yeah, that, that sounds right to me. Like lightning starts striking around the camp and presumably... She's not actually targeting it at anybody, I assume, because of because of the Aes Sedai oath not to use the one power as a weapon, except against Darkspawn or in last defense of the Aes Sedai or the Warder's life. But we don't see it directly, so I, I assume that's what's going on here. How, are you still keeping your horse count, Killy? Do you know where we're at with uh, with Bella back and accounted for and uh, Mandarb and everybody here? Um, Let me see if I had them written down. I was happy that they found Bella, but okay. So who who was riding Bella? Was that Egwene? Yeah, I think that's right because yeah. um Rand keeps being surprised at how how strong of a horse she turns out to be and how um how uh, good at protecting Egwene, I guess, when he's uh when he's really worried about that constantly. Yeah, then I think it's it's still at the four that we had Lan, Moraine, and Egwene's horse. I did get a little lol fantasy moment over the line uh, that Mandarb is a battle-trained stallion, which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, if you know more about horses and horse history uh, than Vikili, but I think, like, specifically stallions are, like, not ever used for military purposes, especially because they are so unreliably horny and opinionated and... (laughs) A problem, and that typically you use geldings and and mares for uh for battle. Maybe there are exceptions, but that was always my historical impression. <laughs> and uh, I, I remember like l- looking up stuff about that at one point when like writing horses in a, in a fantasy story I was working on. Uh, let's see. Yeah, we get uh, we get this um, sneaking into the camp scene and uh, the um, naive like really really proving her chops here on on the stealth uh, and, and tracking ability she has and she and Lan are having this back and forth about um, um, he he lets on that he's impressed with uh, with her abilities here if you're half as good as I think you are they'll never see you and naive is like in, she's thinking internally oh so he thinks I'm good does he and then. Um, has this little quip back and forth uh, where, where he, te- you know, warns her about wolves or warns her about the camp. But, oh, you know, the wolves probably aren't a problem. She would, they, they usually stay away from people. And she is like, oh, I wouldn't have known that. I only grew up around shepherds sarcastically. And um, speaking of the Taveran thing, Moraine pointing out, she's asking, I need to take care because you are part of the pattern too. And I would not risk you any more than any of the others if the whole world were not at risk these days. I think Dan pointed out something very interesting from a, a story crafting perspective, which was that wouldn't this, I mean, I thought this sequence was pretty dramatic and I, I thought it was a pretty, pretty fun couple of chapters here, but Dan pointed out in our chat, wouldn't it be way more dramatic and compelling if they were still holding the captives in the steading? And if that's where Nynaeve and Moraine and Lan had to sneak in to get them in a place where Moraine can't use her power. And if the, um, and if the white cloaks knew that and that were why they were making camp here, maybe, I, I don't know, maybe it would be impossible for them to know. They, as far as we know, they don't really have any way of, of sensing the power. But I don't know, from a novel crafting perspective, when Dan said that, I was mean, like, oh yeah, why wouldn't you do it that way? Because that would really up the stakes here if they don't have 
Moraine's ability to conjure down bolts of lightning to call call back on as a as a follow through here if things go sideways. Yeah, but I think that kind of plays into Jordan's kind of convenience that we've talked about a few times. We're mm-hmm. like, oh, these bad guys are so scary. They're going to fuck you up, but not if you cross a pond. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. I think or like bribing everyone. Like I think, you know, it would have been cool to make it more like a stealth mission and have like Lan and Nynaeve sneak in while Moraine kind of felt helpless that she couldn't do it. Like, I think that would have been really cool, but it's also kind of neat to just have like fucking lightning. <laughs> like, I think I also true, true. appreciate that. I did look it up real quick because I have no mm-hmm. idea. I had no idea about the horse thing. So apparently in the Middle Ages, they did use stallions as war horses. Um, mm-hmm. But sometimes they would use other horses uh, because uh, stallions were loud and would give away your position. Um, mm. And then in the 19th century, it says that they did prefer over uh, mares and geldings over less easily managed stallions. So it okay. depends on what time period. So <laughs> I think, again, he just kind of picks and chooses what he's going to write. Fair, fair enough. Definitely more, more nuance there than I realized. And I guess we're closer to kind of like a medievalish or renaissance setting here we don't have like any indication of firearms or, or anything um speaking of of pitched battles i guess and we get into chapter 38 rescue where we jump over to parents perspective uh, in the lead up to this sequence uh where child buyer is kind of uh, proposing hey here's an easy way to escape it would be uh we're, we're sick of taking you along and you're slowing us down and we're never never going to get where we're trying to go and um you know, uh, if, if you just if you just take this uh, this sharp rock opportunity to get out of here, then uh, that would be better for everyone. And Perrin entertains the idea for a second before even even Perrin being here. I guess I guess he is a thoughtful one, but not usually not usually the most quick witted one. Even he realizes uh, this is definitely a trap. He is just trying to set us up for an excuse to kill us. And uh, then we find out through um, a wolf that communicates to Perrin that help is coming anyway. Land shows up, incapacitates Byron and the guards. Uh, they get Perrin and Egwene into white cloaks as a disguise to get them out in the confusion as Moraine weaves all that aforementioned lightning among the tents. Everybody freaks out. We get uh, we get a nice reunion with, with Nynaeve and Perrin and Egwene, and they all realize that Perrin's eyes have turned yellow, uh, like in a really dramatic wolf-like way, which we'll also get into for the TV episode this week. And... Um, we see Nynaeve doing, interestingly, she like they they did kind of skip this on the show, I think, so we could have that really dramatic scene of her healing everybody after uh, after Loghain kills them. But here we see her healing, working almost immediately on Perrin, right? She like weaves like her ointments and everything into him and almost immediately like his huge bruises from the, the brutal beatings and whippings are disappearing and the lacerations on his skin are closing up. And Perrin sort of notes, sometimes Nynaeve's ointments work fast and sometimes slow, but they always work, implying that she is doing some healing with the power here uh previously without quite knowing it at this point i think she probably does kind of know that there that there's something going on in that um we find out that the uh that the the wolf eyes thing is something moraine did not see coming she says there was no foretelling this like sort of playing the hand that she has been working off some prophecies maybe and like and whatever she's been doing with predicting where things are going to go and she's like is this something ordained to be woven or a change in the pattern if a change by what hand Ah, oh, the wheel weaves as the wheel wills. It, mu- it must be that. Um, which is an interesting line that she brings up all the time um, that we have talked about before that I thought was interesting this week in contrast with last week's episode of the show. Um, episode four, The Dragon Reborn. I don't know if this is, this is probably as good a place of any to get into that point. It was a very cool moment of the show, I thought, like in terms of TV drama. We had, you, you remember when... Um, 
when Moraine comes in to meet Loghain, because she really wants to know if he really is the dragon and if she is if she is maybe even willing to betray her own sisters, if it turns out he is, because she is most concerned with getting the dragon to the last battle and making sure he's not gentled. And um, sorry, Loghain gives this speech about how he hears all the voices of all the past dragons, like, uh, you know, trying to tell him what to do and what they did before. But he's going to find his own way and he's going to find a way to be better than all the previous times and using their knowledge, but be but being a better person, being a better dragon, uniting the world. And uh, and he says, after all, isn't that what the wheel wants? That, that, you know, we get all these chances to keep coming back into our lives over and over again, and we get the chance to be better, to do better. And Moraine has kind of, and that's a very cool line from Loghain in the show from a philosophical context. And Moraine comes back with the line, the wheel doesn't want and anything. Uh, it's people who want things. And, you know, this is just something you want. And these voices you're hearing, those aren't past reincarnations. That's not how it works. You're not hearing the other dragons. Uh, you're actually just going mad with the the, the Dark One's taint on Saiyadin, the male half of the One Power. And I thought that was like a pretty cool dramatic moment in having their clashing philosophies there. And then Moraine sort of like realizing and shutting down the notion that he is the dragon reborn. But also, like, that's kind of the opposite of her mantra and of what she has said both in the show before and in the book. She very clearly says the wheel weaves as the wheel wills. And I think, uh, you know, like, what it, like to will something is to want something in the most literal sense, to want something and to make it happen in the wanting. And we've been told that many times in the book so far that people believe, inc- including Moraine, that the wheel w- and the pattern were put into place by the creator. Like they don't talk about it that much, but they do talk about the, the creator putting light into the world and, and, and weaving out the, and setting the pattern that would be woven from the wheel of time. So I, I don't know. Like, what, did, what did, did you all make anything of that coming back to this passage again? Um, uh, or, or yeah, a, a, any thoughts on what seems to me like a, an interesting contradiction in in philosophy here that could have some big implications down the road. I thought it was an interesting moment in the show too that um, I almost felt like there was like a, a fake out they were trying to give us, which perhaps mm-hmm. is correct that Loghain was good in episode four um, because they show him with that soldier and he heals the soldier um, and, and says like, I want to do things differently. And then even that speech, yeah, yeah. it was interesting because like you, I thought, Oh, like it sounds like he has a good handle on things and he hasn't gone mad. And it was interesting that that was sort of the turning point for Moraine to realize, okay, he's definitely not the dragon mm-hmm. reborn. Um, and so moving on. Um, yeah, so it was interesting. And I I was watching the show with my husband who hasn't read the books. And he was like, wait a minute, I thought, I thought he's good. And I was like, yeah, it was a little bit confusing there. So I, yeah, I, I do feel like it was a contradiction. And I'm not sure if they were trying to do a fake out. And then maybe there just wasn't like the, the impetus for Moraine's turn or like what was supposed to be the audience understanding, ah, this person isn't good after all, wasn't like clear enough or or something. Maybe that, that was what tripped me up about it. Um, but it's interesting that you bring about also the fact that it seems to be a contradiction because she does talk about what the wheel wants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, as far as Loghain goes, I, I thought that was a pretty cool way of depicting it since, you know, we mostly only get him in secondhand rumors in, in this first book and what other people think of him as, as a dragon or false dragon. But I, yeah, I think that's the thing. I don't, I think they were, they were working with nuance there and saying he's not necessarily good or bad in, in those, uh, well, 
in, in like story terms and protagonist terms, I almost get the sense, even in that discussion with Moraine, because she also brings out the fact that, yeah, you're powerful, but I've been meeting a lot of really powerful people lately, like surprisingly once, and you're not nearly powerful enough and making it almost more about it's not the fact that he is good or that, that he's a good leader or bad leader or a fund or a person who's fundamentally trying to do good because he's also he ultimately wants the same thing she wants right he does want to fight the dark one he he wants to be he thinks he is the dragon he's convinced of it he has the he believes he's the messiah who is going to save humanity in the last battle stop the stop the uh this huge being of ancient evil from devouring the world. And for Moraine, the problem almost as much as the fact that she's not convinced. Well, the reason she's not convinced is real almost seems to be that he's not, it's not strong enough, right? She has the radiant when the, when the real dragon shows up, uh, uh, the, he or she will be as radiant as the sun and your power is just like a drop compared to that, which almost, you know, that maybe feels like we're playing in, um, Again, it's that, that similar Dune thing where, where there's all these maybe potential um, Kwisat Haderachs that have come up over the years. Um, but it's not a matter of like whether you have the right intent or the right uh, beliefs. It's it's about being in the right place at the right time and having the right powers and, and the right thing. So I don't know. I think I think they're they're doing some interesting complexity there. Keely, you brought up that really good um, Rafe Judkins AMA that he did on Reddit the other week. And that was one of the ones he talked about where somebody asked him directly, oh, you know, why why did you choose to make Loghain a much more direct part of the story early on? And he was like, well, we just thought it was a much more interesting thing on screen to be able to visualize what it's like to be a male channeler in this world and what's going on with the with the false dragon plotline rather than just having it be something that is told to the characters which i kind of agree with completely from a storycraft thing i think it's more fun to and more active to see thing he said that judkin said that any any anything that they could communicate about the world through character and character action they wanted to do rather than having it just be like lore dumped on characters one way or another um but yeah, it, it's uh, it's interesting to see if that will conflict ideologically with where we're at with things uh, for Moraine here in particular, or when we finally do meet, we still don't meet Loghain these weeks in person in these chapters. We're still not to that part yet. Um, anything else we should talk about in chapter 37 or 38 rescue here about uh, the, the reunion here and catching up on everything between these characters and about the pattern itself. Yeah, we find out that Elias was a warder. Yes, right. Oh, yeah. Big, big reveals there. Um, that adds a really interesting element to him being hunting down by the Red Aja, right, for uh, for the change that starts to happen in him. Is this yeah. also maybe? Oh, sorry. No, I was just I'm thinking like, OK, so they've said that the Aes Sedai has like a crazy bond with their warder. And Lan Lan knows that he knew Elias from when he was a warder, but he doesn't go mm-hmm. into it very much. So that this whole thing says to me that something happened to his Aes Sedai, um, that mm-hmm. either she died or I don't know if they've said it in the book because like the show, I just watched it earlier. So that's more in my brain. But can they actually break the can someone actually break the bond between a warder mm-hmm. and an Aes Sedai in the book? We we don't I don't think we know yet. Okay. Do we uh, Katie do you, do you know if we've had that come up yet? I don't recall anybody saying I don't, at this point. I don't think it's come up in the books. I don't think yeah. Okay. So like at this point, I think the only thing that we can kind of reasonably assume is that something happened his I said I mm-hmm. that he is now on his own cuz you would think that if his I said I was still alive and they were still bonded, he wouldn't be living in the woods. 
Right, right. Hanging out with wolves uh, for his whole life is new pack yeah. here. <laughs> and that I wasn't super clear on. So like now Moraine and Lan know that Perrin has this like wolf thingy, but mm-hmm. it wasn't clear if the wolf thing is something that the Dark One using, like gave mm-hmm. to Perrin, or it's just something that the Dark One knows can happen, like, but he doesn't have control over it. So there was just mm-hmm. some kind of like ambiguity for me about like, is it actually a negative thing? Do like, do it, does Moraine think that is she just kind of like well fucking what happened like i wasn't super clear on that and it's confusing because the wolves supposedly hate dark friends right mm-hmm. so or shadow shadow spawn like the trollocs yeah yeah so yeah that that aspect is confusing too <laughs> i i think it's ambiguous too in that um this is also Perrin sort of notes that this is the first time that he's really seen a point of real tension between Lan and Moraine, that Lan seems to actually be trying to not, like, he, he kind of like, and he wants to say something in private to Perrin beyond Moraine's uh, earshot, and that he maybe has a different perspective on this because of his relationship with Elias as a warder before. Though, because this is book Lan, he says, like, two lines, and he's like, he was a warder before Ellipses trails off, before what happened, the Red Aja, and then, again, Ellipses trails off, nothing beyond that. I feel like if this were show land, he would be talking for the next five to ten minutes, explaining in detail all, all that happened here and just putting all the facts on, on the table and letting us know about he like we can get the implication here that he and he and Elias may have been friends, may have known each other well, that this maybe was something that really affected Land's life, but who knows? It's book land. We're not gonna he's not gonna tell us and <laughs> he's not gonna you know, rip he, his shirt off at the end of the conversation. No, no. <laughs> so he I mean, we can only like guess at what he's hinting at, but he says something about the red Aja. Can warders mm-hmm. potentially be channelers? Hmm. Interesting question. Like could would... I'm just think like could an Aes Sedai be bonded with a warder and then mm-hmm. realize that the warder can channel and then that mm. would trigger the Red Aja going after and that would, you know, potentially sever the bond or relationship with the warder and the Aes Sedai. Assuming that their person wasn't red, could have been red, but I don't well, know. Well, except except the red don't take warders which i don't think we've learned explicitly in the book at this point maybe we do in these chapters because we get to meet our first red in person with elida but the show has made explicit now uh, in the last yeah. two the last two episodes that yeah that, that the red are they're not just um they're they're not just like the cops of the Aes Sedai and like fierce protectors of the world. They're outright, or at least Leandrin in particular is an outright misandrist. Uh, we we find out for um, for some interesting reasons that I guess we'll get to when we talk about episode five. Um, so they have a very different philosophy from the Greens and even from all the other Aja who do do take on men as warders. But that that's a very interesting theory, Keely. We should put a pin in that one and return to it later. The the question about uh, <laughs> what happens if a if a warder can channel. Um, but I don't think we get any firm answers on that here i think i'm just setting uh, myself up for failure with all of my conspiracy theories and then like whatever ends up happening i'm just gonna think like that was fucking mm-hmm. lame i could have wrote it better <laughs> you even, you've been right right a couple times though you even just made me think that like maybe elias had to be unbonded from his Aes Sedai because of his wolf connection mm. i don't know but but maybe the maybe those two things can't go together for some reason <laughs> We'll find out. Uh, maybe next time. I don't know. I haven't read the next chapters, and I told. <laughs> and now the show has me discombobulated about what happens when. <laughs> Uh, though I do know in these next chapters, we go into chapter thirty-nine, weaving of the web, where uh, Rand is trying. He's traveling through Camelin. We get loads of vivid descriptions of this incredible city, like partly built by the Ogier, and all the crazy architecture and going on. And um, 
uh, some some interesting sight of all these like huge, beautiful carved gardens and, and the way that the, the city is sort of built into the landscape rising up on the hills. He tries to get a look at, at Loghain in his cage, um, but a, uh, a, a filthy beggar who Rand doesn't get a good look at, but perhaps seems familiar, uh, uh, point, points him out and like kind of starts scre- screaming in, in a crowd, um, drawing attention to Rand. And Rand runs away because, as we've learned, tensions are really, really, really high in Camelin right now. A lot of violence is breaking out, especially between uh, the two factions, the red faction and the white faction. The red ones who are monarchists or loyalists to uh, more gays and the the people with the white strips of cloth or the white like adornments on their hats who think that uh, more gays is doing a shit job and Eliada is an awful evil vizier from the Aes Sedai and that she is running the kingdom into the ground and that's why everyone is starving and uh, and all these wars are happening and yada yada yada. Rand climbs up the walls to get a better look at Loghain uh, and then he falls over the side and, <laughs> and gets knocked unconscious. Um yeah, a lot, lot of city details in this chapter. I think I tipped my hand that I certainly thought that this was um, Padden Fane showing up once again in the crowd with the beggar sequence. Um, interesting here because Loghain has not been gentled yet at this at this point in the book story. So he is in the cage being paraded through, but, he's, but Rand thinks that he still looks like a king. Like he looks like incredibly like untouchable and like he's the one that's actually in control and the Aes Sedai are still shielding him at this point we learned that they're they're still cutting him off from the source as he is like paraded through um oh yeah the innkeeper talks about this beggar who's been asking around after them too uh half mad I hear he, he says and um but you know he's not gonna he's not gonna betray his guests because he, he thinks that the man might even be a dark friend or something um or looking for one and that they, there's white cloaks all over the city looking for a dark friend dark friend who matches Rand's description uh oh um or Matt's um uh yeah what, what do we think about this chapter yeah I also just assumed it was uh Pad and Fane uh, because otherwise that would make no sense. Because that's the only, like, crazy-looking person that's run at them. Um, I wrote down, you know, Rand sees Loghain and thinks uh, Loghain wasn't defeated. Because I think, at Mm -hmm. least, like, what's happening in the book is playing into my idea from the start that Loghain let himself get caught. Mm. Um, And that, sorry, that just, like, confirmed to me that Rand looked at him and was, like, something freaky about him. Um, That, like, he almost would be, like, smirking. I don't know if, I don't think he actually was smirking. But, like, that's how, like, the whole thing, like, hey, dumb women think they can control me. Mm. (laughs) Like... That's kind of what I thought that like he was letting himself get caught because I think it, it would he it would be known though that if you got caught they would take you to Tarvalon. Yeah. Uh, I, and I wonder if the show still supports that reading of yours because he does seem like so in control on episode 4 of the show, right? Up until the mo- up until the moment where the the wild card appears and 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 uh Nynaeve goes Super Saiyan after he just killed a whole a whole room of Aes Sedai and warders. I could still get the sense that he had like that he had planned all that, or if not like directly planned it, had a contingency. So yeah, now now you have me thinking. I do wonder like was his plan to get paraded into the city and then dramatically like in the middle of the city kill the Aes Sedai that were shielding him, have his army come marching down on Camelin and then like use that because he just did that in Gildan basically with the king of Gildan and that would be his next kingdom like what more dramatic messianic kind of moment could there be right than throwing off his shackles in the middle of this parade uh which I can only assume we didn't get and the show is compressed because they're they're just getting rid of almost every city scene and in scene and 
And we'll see in this episode five that we're going to get to pretty soon that they just folded everything that happens into Camelin into Tarvalin instead. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Like I, I, I've been thinking about your theory about that and it makes, I think they're that, yeah, maybe he did plan all of this and there, there was just, but he did not foresee this ultra mega powerful, um, new channeler showing up and throwing a wrench in his plans. Right. Cause like if he, if he thinks he's the dragon reborn, then he assumes he's more powerful than anyone else that could show up. And yeah. like, even in, well, did they explain in the books or is it just in the show what, that we learned that the Aes I can link? You haven't gotten that in this story yet. I don't think we even know how they captured. Oh no, maybe somebody did mention. I think, you know, it might've been mentioned in passing. Yeah. The, the Aes Sedai, I don't know if they said they linked, but that they snuck in while he was sleeping basically. And, um, yeah, and they like and, blocked and him shielded him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause like, I'm thinking, I mean, again, I'm maybe making something that's not there, but just this idea that like, he thinks he's super duper powerful. And so what better way to show the people of yeah. Tarvalon that he is actually the most powerful than to kill the Aes Sedai that are like claiming that, you know, they've captured him and mm-hmm. we're so fucking fancy and then he's just gonna go nuts and explode them all or something but like in the show they i think we mentioned last time like they make it a point of saying if he was actually struggling wouldn't he be like shaking a little bit wouldn't he be like a little mm-hmm. bit sweaty and he was just chilling in the cage and then at one point he notices i think it isn't leandrin that like loses focus for a second it's either i don't remember which one it is but someone like loses focus mm-hmm. for a split second and he like shoot like <laughs> he uses the power to yeah. like yeah. to like test it like ha ha mm-hmm. and it's like okay so he's he's conscious there watching listening because they also say like oh he can't hear us ah, i don't know how convenient right yeah especially when we find out and have confirmed there that um female channelers cannot see the weaves of male channelers and vice versa somebody who uses Sayadin cannot see Sayadar, and somebody who uses Sayadar cannot see Sayadin. so how much do they really know of what he's actually doing and warded and it does make you wonder yeah as powerful as he is would he not like set up wards we know that moraine can set up wards to alert her when danger is coming that that the Aes Sedai were still just able to sneak past and get through his whole army into his tent in the first place i think you, you've convinced me i i think probably it was his master plan and then got undermined by nope just kidding you're not the actual dragon sorry uh we uh We've met somebody else. We found someone else. Uh, and, you know, we had a nice time together. But <laughs> it's time for all of us to, to move on with our, our messianic story. <laughs> yeah, like his big mistake was hurting Daniel Henney. Don't yes. fuck with him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, which gets us into our last chapter for the book this week. Chapter 40, The Web Titans. Uh, Katie, what's the gist of these ones? We're, we're meeting a lot of new people uh, who have shown no sign of appearing in the show at this point. Although the show is also... Introduced us to characters we haven't met in the book yet. Um, yeah, I, I thought this was a kind of a cool chapter. Um, Rand comes into the palace gardens, or rather falls into them, um, and he is discovered by the daughter heir of Ander, Elaine Trackend, um, and and her brother, um, and and also so the brother is is Gowan, maybe. Yes, uh, that's the traditional. Kimrick or Welsh pronunciation anyway, like uh, which I only learned recently from watching some King Arthur movies. <laughs> and then there's the half-brother, a bit older, um, Galen, and uh, they're taken uh, to Queen Morgays by him. Um, and there, uh, Rand is interrogated by Morgays and her Aes Sedai advisor, Aleda, um, and the Captain General, Gareth Byrne. Um, 
And Aleda foretells uh, pain and division for the whole world uh, with Rand at the center. Um, uh, yeah, it seemed very much like, um, I don't know. Yeah, it was a bit foreboding and mm -hmm. a kind of intense moment there. Um, and she tries to convince uh, the queen to take him prisoner, but the queen believes Rand's story and sets him free, um, which almost felt, it almost felt like the queen just didn't not necessarily believe the Aes Sedai, but she just wanted to assert her own authority. I kind of got that feeling, um, but I was, mm -hmm. I was glad that she did. Um, yeah. And I, I, I liked this chapter because it gave us a look into like a different aspect of this world. Um, and we're sort of in this, this different kind of scene in a palace, which is different than kind of just roaming the streets and going from inn to inn where we've been in the book so far. Um, and obviously there's the interesting, uh, kind of tension and camaraderie that forms between Elaine and Rand. Yeah, she she takes an immediate shine to him. And once again, we're, we're meeting somebody who just, uh, it seems, finds finds Rand uh, sexually irresistible at, <laughs> at first glance, but also seems to... Uh, to be curious about him just to, I, I, maybe the element of, wow, you know, like probably never meets anybody just falling off the wall into the gardens. Uh, Gowan's pretty good natured about it. Uh, but Galad we learned is like a, a, a real, a real tightwad, <laughs> a, a tattletale prick that, uh, that his half sister Elaine just like outright says that she hates the moment he walks away. Uh, not, not the best of sibling relationships here. Um, I've commented on a lot of the Arthurian stuff that's been coming back again, but, you know, um, Gawain is one of the knights of King Arthur's court. Uh, we, we had the, the Green Knight come out this uh, this past year, which is about that character, that film. And Galad sounds to me like a version of Galahad, who is another one of the Knights of the Round Table and who is the like really, in some depictions, the really self-righteous, uh, uptight by the book one. So it seems like we've got uh, either some very direct references or I don't know if it's go at this point, if it's going to be meaningful in a more literal sense, since we did get the stuff about, Oh yeah. King Arthur actually happened in this world 800 years ago. And he uh, tried to build his own Camelot and all that. Um, but yeah, I also liked getting the court scene here. Uh, did, uh, I, Oh, I, I know you have, I don't think you, Oh, you know what? I was going to bring up a Dune spoiler, uh, thing. Um, Never mind. I'll, I'll bring it up at a future time because, uh, Keely, you haven't had the chance to finish the first book, have you? There, this this scene with Elida reminds me very, very, very strongly of a certain Bene Gesserit scene that that happens in in a courtroom in Dune with almost exactly the same kind kind of tenor. But it's uh, maybe one of the first points in this book. I'm starting to get like, oh yeah, here's the other big influence on on the series besides the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, oh, here's an element that they've left out the show. I think entirely so far. Rand is shocked to realize the entire palace gardens are like verdant green, like flowing with growth and flowers and everything because everything is withering and dying everywhere and spring is not coming. And it's like just like this endless dregs of winter left over and people are beginning to fear. Uh, they're already beginning to go hungry. They're fearing they're all going to starve. And we learn Elida has been using the one power to uh, to nourish and and make a garden here, which upsets Elaine because Elaine's like, uh, people, people need food. Couldn't we do this for them? It seems obscene that we're like living in this kind of luxury here with a garden and, and Elida, which tells us something about her personality. It's like, well, I could do the same thing for one farm, uh, maybe with about 
the effort here. Do you want to do you want to pick one, sweetie? Do you want to do you want to choose our our peasants to be elevated in just this way that even before we meet Elida, really uh, <laughs> uh, re- really sets uh, me at least me on edge against her as a character. Like no, like not good news. Um, probably, although she is the she is the first red Aja we meet in this story, and she's uh, I think she's pretty different from. What we've seen of Leandrin in the show so far, uh, she see, she's well, for one thing, she's a much more immediately political figure here right away. We get the sense she might be the power uh, behind the throne, or at least people seem to think that. And like you said, Katie, it seems like more gaze is kind of trying to assert her own autonomy here in a way. But we also learn like it seems like everybody thinks either Gareth Brine runs the kingdom or or Elida does. And more gaze is kind of just caught in between the two of them to some extent. Yeah, this whole thing kind of reminded me, we've been watching um, The Great Season 2, um, which Ooh, if yep. you haven't watched The Great, highly recommend it. It's uh, L, I think it's L Fanning of the two. Yeah, it's L Fanning as Catherine the Great and then um, Nicholas Holt as Peter. And it's very much <laughs> a comedy. But this whole like thing reminded me very much of, spoilers for Season 2, of Catherine <laughs> wanting to be like a totally chill leader, like doesn't want to hurt anyone. And then Velimentov on the side, who's like the war general, just wanted to kill everyone like mm-hmm. i was getting that vibe because we just watched <laughs> the first couple episodes um but i felt like again we have this like oh you're so fucking powerful you're <laughs> you're gonna have such a big impact on the whole fucking world mm-hmm. with like no additional context like no one explains shit but somehow everyone knows everything like you know I- all these eyes to die <laughs> fucking loyal everyone has this like insider knowledge but not enough or they're not willing to share what will happen or whatever, which I guess maybe they can't if, you know, they think it would impact their behavior, which would change the pattern or whatever. But I just yeah. I wrote that down again. I was like, uh, same vibe with um, Egwene and Nynaeve that they're like super fucking powerful for the first time in a long time, which is also kind of fucking rude. <laughs> like when they say that around other Aes Sedai or on other people, it's like these guys are going to be really powerful on like your weak ass. <laughs> like that, that's, that's kind of the vibe that I'm getting. Again, though, they explain, well, they don't explain, but they, they freak out over his sword, that he's got the yep. hair and Mark sword. Why is that important? I feel like they've mentioned that so many times, but there's, I don't know why Tam had it. I don't know why the hair and Mark is so fucking powerful or what it means. Rand clearly doesn't, but everyone else does, and they're not fucking saying anything. Mm-hmm. It's like, even when Morghese realizes that, like, she believes Rand, she's still not volunteering any fucking information. No, and it's funny because she even, even, even Morghese with Elida is like, just tell me, speak it like plain and simple. Yeah. Like, none of your Aes Sedai cryptic bullshit this time, <laughs> nothing vague. Just tell me the foretelling. And then Elida gives some cryptic bullshit. Anyway, that's all <laughs> completely non-clarifying other than the fact that Rand is going to be at the center of a whole bunch of uh, of, of awful uh, suffering and chaos, um, which says nothing about whether he'll be responsible for it or if he's just going to be, you know, mm-hmm. continuing to be um, at the middle of all these big events. Uh, we get more I- inclinations of Elida's personality when she's like, oh, you know, just get a few weeks imprisoned will not harm him. Just give me a chance. To, they'll give me a chance to learn more. And, and of course, she can't lie. She's the sort of person who really thinks that a few weeks in a palace dungeon is not harming someone. That's just uh, <laughs> that's just who Elida is. And she wants a lot. You get the sense of like Rand as this interesting lab rat she wants to study, uh, which is probably true if she thinks that he's Taverin. And oh, this is the first time. Is this the first time in this novel that we have confirmed that some Aes Sedai can actually just straight up prophesy and and apparently tell like um, a direct vision of the future beyond like Moraine has sort of cryptically referenced 
things that she seems to know about the future, but nobody has said the word foretelling, have have they, in like this capital F foretelling, like a thing that I said I can sometimes do? Not that I've noticed, but I mean, this is, isn't this like the first time though that we're meeting any other colors other than Maureen? So we don't mm-hmm. really know if they can, because we're, I mean, also like, I didn't know that, I don't know if this is specific to Elida or if all red Aja or all Aes Sedai can fucking manipulate nature. Like we know mm. that Moraine can like conjure a, uh, what the hell is that? Like a whirlwind thingy. Cause she, she tried to sink the boat when yep. they, when they came across. So we know she can do that, but no one has explicitly said like, oh yeah, I could save your farm if I fucking want to. Yeah. We, we've gotten way more in the show so far and still not much about the how the Aes Sedai function and what the different Ajas are. We may have had some inclination. I think I think maybe Moraine said at some point that she's at her strongest when working with air, I think. So we maybe mm. get the sense that some Aes Sedai are better at other other things, better at some things than others. But no, not, none of that has really been explained to us. Camelin feels like the place where we're finally getting some things explained or, or context given to them. Though still less than the show has given us to date. Um, and they make the, I, I think the show makes the pretty good visual shorthand, I think, of the different color Ajas of Aes Sedai always wear only that color in their clothing, which is handy uh, for a visual medium, I think, and just so, so you remember right away. Because that doesn't seem to be the case here, because is actually wearing green, I think. She's wearing like the most like startling, startlingly emerald green dress that, that Rand has ever seen. We get long descriptions of people's clothing here and like Elaine's like very, very beautiful like fur-lined dress and the silk and the emeralds that she's that she's wearing. Um and yeah, I, I I kind of enjoy the the side tour to getting like introduced to this palace setting and even the way that Elaine and and Gawain both speak in this um kind of flowery courtly way and it's like they just walked in from a different kind of story like a, like a, a medieval courtly romance with the, the the way that they that they see the world and and talk about things and we get the sense I think that this is not the last we're going to see of any of these characters as Rand narrowly escapes without getting thrown into uh, Elida's experimental dungeon here um, after getting this whirl- whirlwind tour of the palace that's all our chapters for this week any any final thoughts on where we are in Eye of the World here I'm sure we'll come back to it as we talk about this week's episode of the show. I'll just say I I enjoyed the, the this set of chapters. Like I felt like um, we got a, a, a variety of like action and new information and philosophical ideas. Um, yeah, I, I felt like it felt like a good grouping of chapters this week. Yeah, and I really liked. Um, I don't think we really mentioned it, but the I think the final in. Or maybe the one that they're like mm-hmm. currently at uh, yeah. is run by someone who knew Tom and was like, oh, <laughs> like what happened to him? What did he get into? Yeah. Um, and so I like that we're learning more about Tom, and I'm hoping mm-hmm. that it, that this is very much falling into the you know he died off screen, so he didn't actually die kind <laughs> of thing. So, but this is also which the in, the me... innkeeper even says right, I'll believe it when I see it. He's yeah, like, uh, Tom, like... Tom Maryland's not dead. Until but th- then. <laughs> this is even making me like even more pissed at the show for how they handled Tom. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, we're learning so much about him and then the show just kind of wrote him off. Yeah, um, he was previously my least favorite of the character depictions on the show so far in terms of what they changed about his design. I think I have a new least favorite, at least visually speaking, um, that will come up in the course of Episode five, Blood Calls Blood. Uh, no shade on the actor whatsoever. I actually think the actor seems pretty great uh, for like sounding like Loyal and, and, and what I think of Loyal so far. Who boy, when he shows up, though, I, I guess we'll we'll get there. Um, episode 
five blood calls blood uh for first thoughts on on the beginning of this one from last night or you you both watch it either yes last night or today right yeah i watched it this morning and um <laughs> at the time i was on lunch from my job and i was uh, probably being the most like disgusting person because I was eating leftover pizza, just like screaming <laughs> at my computer, <laughs> watching it, um, just like begging for someone to fucking channel, just kill everyone. I hate everyone. Mm. Is like screaming it, like cheering when the wolves started eating people. It's like fuck yeah. So I felt a lot of mixed emotions with this one. Um, you guys kind of set me up though to be disappointed by your reactions to loyal in the chat. So so I was waiting to, to mm. hate what they made him look like, and I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess he's the ogier in the room. Um, <laughs> let me, uh, let's see. Oh, I don't have it. Uh, does any, anybody have uh, that that description I had posted of him <laughs> from from when we meet him in the in these chapters oh. in the books here? Um He's described, well, I, I don't have the quote right in front of me, but he's described as standing almost 10 feet tall, mm. head all, like leaning down so he doesn't brush against the roof as he comes in, broad face, snout, like almost snout like nose, eyebrows that hang down like tails, uh, uh, and pale eyes, big as teacups. His ears are like long and come to tufted points through a shaggy black mane of hair that twitch uh, when his emotions are running high and I immediately I am picturing this sounds like beast from beauty and the beast uh, to me which I brought up brought it before uh, uh, as like a, a character description other than maybe the shaggy eyebrows hanging all, all the way down giving this kind of sad droopy look and Aran freaks out and thinks that it is a trollock before him in the library and he's like stumbling back trying to yell this word and you can think I'm picturing like this 10 foot hulking mass of a thing behind me in the room I just walked into and we meet him on the show and he's a dude. He's some dude with uh, he's got curly hair and slightly tufted eyebrows, I guess. He's maybe an inch or two taller than Rand. It's hard to tell at the angles there. He doesn't look particularly huge, but Rand for still freaks out and has this reaction like he's a Trolloc. And I'm like, did you see the same <laughs> the same Trollocs I saw on the show? <laughs> I, I uh um yeah i i'll say my my setup for watching the show last night was basically just funny because i so my husband's watching it with me he has been disappointed so far because he didn't read the books but he was really excited for the show and he i think he just had his expectations set way too high and he like really wanted it to be the next game of thrones and that's like an mm. expectation that was put out there and just ruined ruined things um and so so even the opening shots to the show my husband phil is just like that shot is so oh, underwhelming and why are they just showing these close-ups like we're on a set mm. somewhere and where like the like he's like freezing the screen and being like this could have been a beautiful shot when you see like the different colored Aes Sedai kind of walking forward but it's like not a beautiful shot and and then yeah. the you know loyal comes onto the screen and he's like what is this and i was just like oh <laughs> man this is just not going well today um and of course, I mean, there's still so much to enjoy about the show, but mm -hmm. I, I have to say this episode was 
it felt underwhelming in both like the plot that happened and maybe also in 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 the visuals overall um yeah and and that was just like a, a bit of a bummer <laughs> yeah and and i guess i should make i've said this off air but i should be clear no shade on hamed anamashon i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing it right but i think that's the the name of the actor who is playing loyal here his voice is spot on and i feel yeah. like he's doing the physical presence and, you know, his performance here, I'm sure if this were like him on a green screen with all the dots on, on his head instead of the fine, finished makeup we'd see here, I'd be like, oh, yeah, he's this is going to be great when we see the finished product. Or or even if they just did their practical ways, like uh, it sounds like, you know, that, that Phil was pointing out about the way you can compose a shot to frame a scene and, and, and lend it the drama that you can't always do with a budget. There, they, there are ways they could have filmed it from like lower camera angles mm -hmm. when it's showing Loyal with like Rand's back turned to make it look as though he is dominating over the scene. There are tricks and tips that they used a million of even in the cheaper earlier Harry Potter movies for Hagrid, uh, who is not a CG creation for the most part. He's like a combination of a camera tricks and a guy with like a big fake head on when you're seeing him from from behind. I don't think he's like an especially even super tall actor. Uh, or of course, like the, the, you know, they did really intense stuff in the Lord of the Rings movies with like moving sets to get those scenes where Gandalf looks huge by the hobbits and all that. But a good half the scenes from the making of are just them doing, you know, the things you do with a camera in a low budget production to make someone look big that I did not think that they were even bothering with here um we got a few interesting shots i guess uh i i don't know the there there was the image of did, did we open this one on the Aes Sedai doing the uh, the funeral mm -hmm. for the fallen warders and the others who died and um oh boy i had forgotten her name last week but the uh, the green Aes Sedai who died was Kareni Sedai her warder is Stepin who is probably the main character of this episode as it <laughs> yeah. turns out i think he gets more screen time than anybody interesting decision um which will, yeah, I mean, I, I I liked him and I liked his performance. I really liked Karaini last week. Mm -hmm. I had forgotten that, that it, she is a major character in A New Spring, the prequel novel. She doesn't show up in Eye of the World at all because she, and, and we only find out about her fate off screen. So these are not things that we're going to get to directly. I think we'll meet Stepin in The Great Hunt right at the beginning. And I am so sorry if I have implied at points in the show that, oh yeah, we won't be spoilered constantly, I don't think, by the season because we're, we're ahead of reading the book. Now, this show is just thrown in so many yeah. things from the beginning of The Great Hunt now, book two, and from A New Spring, the the Marine prequel that I've referenced many times. But yeah, I really liked Karaini and her brief appearance before uh, before she died here. And we're seeing her, um, we're seeing her, you know, Stepin is now forlorn and alone. And we're learning all about how the warder bond is this, we heard last week, this hugely intense thing that goes beyond any normal relationship. You feel each other all the time. It's like a constant other presence in your mind for decades and decades, well beyond the length of normal human relationships. And with this supernatural, like almost joined soul component to it. Um, and we did get this good shot coming up of the bodies buried out, though another maybe point where I was like, huh, is that really consistent with Wheel of Time philosophy where they're giving like a sort of lovely brief funeral saying thing here where they where they commit all the these fallen to the mother's embrace, like to return to the mother's embrace, which I'm like sort of cocking my head and being like, well, that's 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 lovely and consistent with a lot of other 
fantasy uh, faith or, or real world ones. Is that consistent with the image we have gotten of this world where people believe in eternal return and everybody believes very firmly that they are woven back into the pattern as a new person? We've gotten no mention of like anything resembling an afterlife or, or like a, of a, if not a heaven or anything, then, then this sort of like paradise or, or returning to even, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's, maybe they just mean it in the sense of returning to earth than for your body to be recycled and become a part of the world again in the way that your, uh, that your soul will become another person again in this world. Maybe I'm just overthinking it. Um, and maybe it's just because I hadn't really heard. And, you know, later in this episode, there's a lot of religious stuff that I do not ever recall being the way that it's depicted in the novel. So I'm curious uh, what, what your perspectives were as people who have, don't have that, that baggage that, that I'm bringing to it at that point for our, our what was what was it you uh, summarized this episode, Keely? Uh, three three funerals and a steading. Oh, yeah, someone on the the subreddit in like yeah. commenting on it said that's what this episode was. It was weird. Um, I mean, the whole thing was like really sad. I was kind of bummed that we're just like seeing Stepin be depressed the whole time. Um, but also I was nitpicking on that whole shot because, you know, the camera comes out and it's like, oh, how powerful. Like, you know, they have them all buried mm-hmm. kind of in a circle. But all of the graves were fucking immaculate. Like they were all yeah. just the size of the bodies, every single one. And I was like, that's not how graves work. <laughs> like, you know, how much time did that fucking take? Yeah. Like if you measure out each fucking person and then like, you know, they have the the bodies not buried at all. They're just like in a little bit of an indent in the in the ground. So it's like Mm. returning them to the mother. You mean like the wolves? predators because like you're just giving them meat like that's kind of yeah. they, they put them all out and so i thought that was I, I got hung up on that probably just to like break away from being sad for 45 minutes but um mm. yeah i kind of kind of got like nitpicky with that where it was it just no, that's not realistic that's not how it's gonna work <laughs> uh, i'll say one thing i liked about the kind of arc of Steppen's plot in this episode was kind of exactly what you you said earlier, Caleb, that it was an interesting way to like have a character exemplify the connection between the Aes Sedai and the Warder, which like Mm -hmm. in the book that we've read so far, we've really just gotten kind of like a couple sentences here and there about the connection and about like when an Aes Sedai dies, their Warder also dies in in some vague way and we don't really understand it too much. Um, But it, by by allowing this character to go through it, like in a character arc, it did give us a lot of insight um, to their bond, which I thought was interesting. So I felt like I came away from this episode, if nothing else, understanding a bit more about the strength of the connection between a warder and an Aes Sedai and, and some, some of the, um, I don't know, it, I was thinking of the death as more direct like they they died as a result of the Aes Sedai's death but this is like a mm-hmm. different a different interpretation of that it's more like their their heart is kind of broken almost in the same way that um like they explain uh, a person's heart kind of and and self withering away when the power is taken away from yeah. them um yeah very similar it seems yeah yeah that's literally i was going to say that, <laughs> that this is very much mirroring though what they said happens when the ma- 
male that can channel get gentled. Um, mm -hmm. At least just from the experience of Tom nephew Owen, from what we learned, is that he eventually just lost himself as a person and committed suicide because he's been separated from like this big part of him. And I, yeah. I it was such a parallel to Steppen because, you know, he can't necessarily channel that we know of, but he's connected to the power through his eyes to die. And when that is gone, mm. you know, it's not just like the physical companionship, but that I feel like, you know, it must feel like a like something was ripped out of him. Like, you know, whatever special abilities he had because he was connected, that's gone. And so like, what's his fucking purpose now? Yeah. And we get interesting development um, coming out of that with Moraine, uh, who is talking and thinking, it seems, with her sisters uh, that uh, throughout this episode about possible ways, whether it is whether it is possible to release a warder from the bond. And and you get the sense of these scenes, and I think last episode too, the stuff that she is, you know, realizing how dangerous her life is and it's become and seeing what is happening to Stepin that she cares very, very deeply for Lan, the sense I get here, and is realizing, God, this is probably going to happen to him because I am in like the most, like all of us are in a dangerous line of work and I'm probably in the most dangerous line of work of any Aes Sedai and, and realizing that this is on her mind, that um, the, the looks that they exchange throughout this, the complication that is introduced as multiple characters give voice to the fact that Lan is very obviously falling for Nynaeve and Nynaeve is falling for Lan. And nobody really knowing maybe what that means in terms of the complications of an Aes Sedai warder relationship and how close their bond is. Um, and even the bond between warders, if they're with a green, uh, a green Aes Sedai, the green Aja, who will often take on numerous uh, warders who it seems develop just as deep a connection with each other as as they do with the with the Aes Sedai herself. And actually, um, is it Alana? I'm totally blanking. I think it's Alana, Alana Sedai, the green who is pretty prominent in this episode. I forgot to look up her actress who I'm really liking so far and had wanted to uh, had wanted to say something about that. I like her. I like her, her character a lot in the books and I like her performance so far. True of most of the characters in the show. And she and her warders, it seems, are probably going to offer offer step in to like come yeah. come into their bond and basically make him part of their family slash polycule uh, and um, and maybe share or take some of the pain away. It seems uh, that is not to be as we as we find out in the course of this episode. A really depressing episode, like you said, Gilly. It's a lot of lot of sadness throughout. Um, a lot of stuff in the White Tower because we are right into Tarvalin. Everybody is arriving in Tarvalin. Screw Camelin. We're skipping Camelin completely. Anything that happened in the capital city of Andor is just going to be compressed into here. Loghain is being paraded through the streets here, but he's not that tall, regal, kingly, undefeated figure. He's kind of dead-eyed looking and just sort of collapsed over in a husk. Except for now, you know, Rand and Matt have showed up here and Matt is looking dire. They are they are wandering into the city. You learn they've been on the road about a month. And Rand still, when you see him like in his, he's looking still pretty fine and showered and elfin when you first see him in his like green, green cloak there. And then you see Matt behind him looking like death itself, <laughs> death itself and, uh, and being so paranoid, he like curses out a small child who bu bumps into him and everything like threat threatens him. Um, and we don't. Okay, so we don't get the scene with the beggar pointing yeah. out and screaming out um, a, a, a possible Pad and Fane calling out at, at Rand. Instead, we get a weird moment where it seems like Loghain is doing it and looking over and seeing either Rand or Matt or both. I think they both seem to think that he is 
looking at them and like this, like really like sudden, I don't know, the camera is communicating this like staring into their soul moment. And he says something, I think directly to them, which I've already forgotten. It's ominous is all I remember. Um, and Matt almost kind of falls off the wall in that moment. Uh, right, right after I saw that, I the ending of that scene made me believe that maybe that was all in Matt's head. So yeah. then I was like kind of confused because at first hmm. I thought, yeah. I was like, which person is he looking at? And then I was like, oh, wait, maybe that didn't even really happen. And that was all in Matt's head, part of his like overt mm-hmm. possession, which... Yeah, I was going to ask how you guys felt about how overt his possession seems. <laughs> yeah, I got the same vibe because at first I was like, oh shit, you know, is Logan not actually gentle? Is he still fucked up? And then they yeah. like hard cut to Matt and then cut back and he's actually still like a hut. So I feel like that was just something that Matt imagined or like it's just mm-hmm. something fucking with his head um, and not necessarily Loghain either actually doing it or projecting it unless they're gonna make Loghain you know a, somehow still a bigger character even though he's been gentled which would not make mm. sense for anything else but fuck it who knows <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, th- I think you're probably right they did they, the communication was that it was something that only Matt could because I, I guess you can read Rand's expression either way that he's like freaking out about Matt being yeah. freaked out not necessarily that he He's seeing any of this. And I think I was kind of importing the bigger scene that mirrors it, the probably Pat and Fane scene from Eye of the World, where it happens to Rand and Matt is not there because Matt is like basically dying uh, of paranoia and and loathing and, and, you know, and depression at the end and not wanting to talk to anyone or eat anything, which he does go to right after this, right? Like they, they he then mm-hmm. leaves Matt at the inn where it's not named, I don't think the same inn as the book. We don't meet anybody here. We don't meet Tom's friend. We do hear that this is the inn Tom sent them to rather than the one in Camelin, because I don't think Tom ever would have sent them to an inn in Tarvalin from what we have learned of Tom and what he has advised them so far. Like, I feel like even in the show, Tom had no intention of ever letting them reach Tarvalin. He was going to try to get them away from Moraine long before they got near to Aes Sedai clutches and, and the Red Aja in particular. Yeah, it makes no sense um, from what we know about the history of Tom, because they said anyone associated with Tom is at mm-hmm. risk because of whatever went down with the queen. But they don't, he is not that person so far in the show, right? Nope, not that he's just a gleeman as far as we know, I think. Yeah. Uh, who, so- had, who had a nephew who could channel yeah so unless they're like gonna introduce that later like bring him back later this makes no fucking sense so i feel like in order for this to flow with the rest of the show that it would happen in in tarvalin instead of camelin they need to eliminate that part of his Mm. character which would be really sad because i like how we instantly know that he is tied into all this camelin Mm -hmm. back drama and the royal court here and everything and um even have the innkeeper commenting that there are like rumors about the parentage of a, of Elaine and Gowen who have a different father from Galad and, and all and all this stuff and that Tom was like the paramour for for years and years and years for Queen Morgaze. I was sad to not get the whole Queen Morgaze scene with him falling into the garden and I don't know if that scene will happen in some way shape or form but um but yeah I was I liked that scene quite a lot in the book and I was kind of hoping to see it in, in the show too. 
I suspect we'll get a version of it because as we've learned, we learned one thing we learned in chapter 40, right, is that Elaine is about to be sent to Tar Valen and Gawain is going to accompany her as her like he's like he's sort of as as the oldest brother or or the chosen brother or whichever. He's like her honor guard, like it's his duty in life to to make sure that she becomes queen and to keep her safe. And they're heading to Tar Valen, so maybe he'll still meet. Elaine and Gowan here, but then is like, I don't know, are, are Elida and and Morghese also going to show up or are they just going to like give Elida's parts to Leandrin, this other red sister who is here in Tarvalin at this point? I don't know. There's so much compression going on at yeah. this point where, where we have skipped so much and yet at the same time drawn in so much plot from later in the book or from the next book or from a different uh, prequel book entirely. I no longer have any idea how they're going to handle some of these things related to that. This episode was the most interesting for me so far as far as like book versus TV show time frame. Because like, I feel like we've been reading the book for quite a while now and watching the TV Mm -hmm. show only for a couple weeks. And we're like pretty much on par slash some parts of the TV show are ahead. Um, So so that yeah, it was just (laughs) an interesting like perspective kind of trippy there. Yeah, Yeah, like mirror, mirror universe versions. Yeah, and one of the things that I was disappointed, gonna go back to Loyal for a minute, one of the things that I was disappointed with was that the reason that he's in the library part of the inn to begin with is because the innkeeper was like, you need to fucking hide because everyone is like shouting at you in the streets, like you're so scary mm. looking, everyone. And then he's like, you know, I want to come with you. And Rand in the book is like, fuck no, like we're supposed to be hiding <laughs> and chill. Yeah. You know, we're not going to pull a parent and Egwene and go with the loudest fucking group on the earth. We're going <laughs> to try to you know sneak around and so then in the show he's like maybe six three and has a deep voice yeah. and like a thick body and so he's like all right i fucking fit in like I'll, let me gather my shit and i'll be along with you and i was like ah like you're taking away from something that i thought was so cool is that he has this like imposing presence um mm-hmm. which very much to me like you guys were saying feels like a tree beard like he's big and gentle slow. giant yeah yeah and and they just they took that away and basically made him i said in chat like just made him a thick boy with a baritone voice and we're like we fucking did it like we don't have to do anything else well me oh. uh, i was gonna change the subject so if you have something to say on this go for it no i was about to transition us into getting into the white tower uh was it was were you gonna change to something else i was just gonna talk about uh the scene with the uh the way of the leaf people um Mm, yeah yeah. because i i just thought that that was another interesting way that they um like because in the book we didn't get the way of the leaf people actually standing up with their passive ways to the um children of Mm -hmm. the light or to anyone um so i thought that was also another interesting way that the characters were kind of given like authority to explain or show show us rather than explain what their kind of way of life is so i thought that was kind of cool um but i did i did want to ask you guys what you thought another character that i feel they changed so much was the um the male character the male way of the leaf character what that Egwene liked what aram or aram yeah like i thought his character was changed so much in the show like um he sort of Mm. has like a flippant attitude about his parents and even about the way of the leaf whereas in the book he is like steadfast to the way and uh kind of even like overtly preachy about it so i thought Mm. that was an interesting character change as well um but but anyway i i did like enjoy that scene where you actually get to see the way that they are like passively responding to the resistance yeah they're doing the sort of 
like civil rights era non like you know Martin Luther King nonviolence approach of like doing this human body chain like one of one of those um ta- one of those tactics used in the street to actually like literally stop off the yeah. uh, the white cloaks who okay <sighs> lots to say about the white cloaks in this episode too but who we learn who who Aram insists you know as 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 awful as they can be they won't hurt or they won't kill um Twatha'an like the you know even even white cloaks won't do that so we're getting like some of the softening of them here and you know they do have principles and they do uh you know even though they're being like uh, brutal cops here basically beating down the uh the Twatha'an um trying to do the the the, the body link the chain to stop them from getting Perrin Egwene um well, by the end of the episode, I think we'll find that the show White Cloaks are like, if there's any ambiguity about the White Cloaks in the book, they are just there's none here. They are just completely evil to the core sadist, just yeah. openly hunting down Aes Sedai across the country and don't even really need pretext of you being a dark friend or having like they 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 take Perrin and Egwene captive in the book because Perrin kills a whole bunch of and like kind of a misunderstanding late at night, Perrin and the wolves kill a whole bunch of of white cloaks uh and he's like acting like a like a like an animal in the fight and just like tearing between them and and ripping uh like like shoulder off of them with his teeth and stuff and bearing into them with the axe and even then lord bornhold is like oh you know we're gonna let Egwene go we don't think you did anything other than hang out with the wrong company as soon as we get to camelin but yeah the, and, and he does and he has a full interrogation first and he lets perrin condemn himself and he and like basically we talked about i think you and i katie like building up a list of indictments against perrin essentially as perrin admits to all these like things that seem really bad <laughs> from somebody who doesn't have the context of his situation no the 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 white cloaks here are just like um like the most evil inquisitorial uh can do whatever they want somehow without starting a war with the Aes Sedai um evil evil McBadbads sadist uh, <laughs> on the face of the earth I, I don't know I I thought this was over the top in some ways with, with that in, in a way that's but but Dan thinks the opposite of me it seems like Dan thinks that this like gave them more menace and made them more of a, an interesting set of antagonists in the story where, where did you all come down on this depiction here I particularly didn't like the fact that um who is it child what's the the main guy that's interrogating them child he's he's a he's a questioner he's not child buyer from the book and he's not uh what, what is his name is it is it Yvonne? no what is what the guy's uh, well, anyway, I'll try, I'll try to find yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> you find it. Anyway, that guy, I particularly didn't like that he made this disclaimer that if Egwene did channel, then then she would die. And if she didn't, then Perrin would die. Like uh-huh. I, that aspect I didn't like. It just seemed, like you said, it like made them just fully bad to me. Um, Valda, child Valda. Okay, and yeah. So, so that was one aspect that I was just like, mm-hmm. okay, well, that's like not really following any kind of um, set of rules at all. That's just evil. Yeah. Yeah, and there, um, there's one thing that they they've done with him, which is like every scene that he's in, he's eating, <laughs> and somehow that just makes him so <laughs> fucking gross. <laughs> I don't. Know. Yeah. I I think it's because it shows how nonchalant he is, how the violence mm-hmm. doesn't impact him. That he's eating, and they keep showing him like you know gently carving shit, whatever. And then he goes over and he he's like carving yeah. Perrin, and so it's just like that yep. aspect of it. It's just like, oh, you're fucking gross. <laughs> like you're such an asshole. I hate you. But why are you fucking eating? <laughs> 
That's a that's a classic. I feel like for for villainizing someone, it's like Denethor again in the Lord of the Rings movies, like tearing <laughs> into that tomato while he sends his son out to die on the, on the battlefield. The, the Baron in Dune do that too. He uh-huh. there's like a particular oh, scene yeah. where he's just like really grotesquely eating, and I've always like I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> Abdul Salas, uh, by the way, is the name of that actor who plays Amivald, who I think is doing a great job with yeah. the, the, with what he's given script-wise here. But like, but you, like you were saying, Keely, he's like all like to show us how unflappable he is in the face of violence and what and and and, and what he's capable of. He's, he seems like he's a he's fearless and he's a sadist. But then the moment that Perrin starts growling slightly, he's like freaking out and like, oh no, what is this? What am I gonna do? And some yeah. stumbling backwards. It was. That felt like one of the clumsier yeah. filmmaking moments we've seen in terms of Perrin hadn't done anything yet beyond like his eyes go yellow and he's like sort of growling and he's not giving a particularly monstrous looking performance. I feel like that's the implication, but he's just like some dude who has just been like had his back carved to pieces and now his bonds are cut. And, you know, Valda is still like standing there and he's I think he's armed like it's not clear why he is freaking out and like a like, you know, like a scared child, literal child instead of pulling out his sword or, or anything. He's just, I don't know what is going on with that character or characterization so there. I kind of took that as he is so focused on the women having access to the power. And it wasn't clear mm. to me whether Perrin actually channeled or whether Egwene like gave it to him or something because we did see like the little smoky tendrils around Perrin. So I mm-hmm. think maybe in that moment, it just caught him off guard because mm. he's expecting this entire time to torture women and for women to be the threat and for Perrin to have any kind of other ability. I think he was like, oh shit, I'm fucked. Like, which, you is know. Bizarre, which is bizarre though, because we know that the White Cloaks hunt down male channelers worst of all. Like even, even they think that the male ones are worse than the than the women right they're more dangerous they're they're uncontrolled they're the ones who go they're the ones who go insane so i i like why like why why is he so shouldn't he be like ah this one and then like you know and because he's uh, this is another thing Dan brought up off air. He's like, "What? How are you? How is he just freely hunting down Aes Sedai, who can do these incredible things? How is he? Ca- and I'm wondering, how is he capturing them alive? Like, I could believe if he like kills a few in their sleep, maybe, or like yeah. shoots one luckily with an arrow. How is he capturing these Aes Sedai so he can like do this whole elongated torture and then burn them at the stake? Why aren't they just blowing the whole camp up or sm- like smiting him with lightning? What is what is the?" mechanism here uh, and that he's just getting away with this and and doing this apparently like all across the country yeah and like how is he fucking doing it right outside the wall yes of tar valen like (laughs) they made it a point of of showing like oh shit we're almost there and then all of a sudden the children are there so is there like is is it beyond the walls that i said i are like now my fucking problem (laughs) like how how are they able to to do this so freely just kind of we know we know you said they can sense channeling from far away right you brought that up again which we know to be true from from various points in the book like it's like a you know it's like a beacon on a hill how are all the this is yeah i don't yeah. i don't know oh, well and this goes into what we talked about earlier too where um or i think we only talked about it in chat where uh morgan explicitly says to nynaeve like you know i've got eyes and ears fucking everywhere and if they show uh-huh. up if their friends show up i'll take you to them it's like well where's your fucking <laughs> eyes and ears they should be fired like uh-huh. one of them yep. is getting tortured the other one is losing his shit sitting and watching Logan. like what the fuck are you doing she doesn't know what's happening to her own warder somehow no. through the bond doesn't feel that he's been poisoned or drugged to fall asleep there i feel like this this episode to me feels 
this is the first time I felt like all the compression they're doing, trying to like stuff the, these chapters into the screenplay, just feels kind of clumsy. Like it doesn't feel like they worked through all these plot points or really gave satisfying answers to what's going on or remembered where the characters are or what the implications. But I, I found myself very frustrated in like I have not minded like the big changes they've made to the story. Like I like last episode was one maybe my favorite. I loved all the stuff that they brought into there. But this one just has me. I, I feel like I spent too much time being like, wait, what? How is wait, wait, yeah, uh, um, are you sure? Okay, is this going to be explained or um? Yeah, yeah. I, I just well, and you know, I think I said this earlier too that like I've noticed that almost every episode has a different writer. I think there's been a couple episodes so far mm-hmm. that have said like the Clarkson brothers or whatever. Um, and so I'm wondering, you know, are we seeing such like fuckery because they've got more than one writer that it's like, you know, we're noticing some episodes are like so fucking strong and like holy crap, I enjoyed that, and then the yeah. next one it's a different writer and it's like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like you, you just eliminated so many things or like you didn't include shit that was you know a big part of the book and so um i don't know if that's actually a part of it i would imagine that plays in some of it because they're gonna have somewhat creative differences but you'd also think that rafe would be more like mm-hmm. influential but that's his job right to make right. sure that, that yeah <laughs> and so it's just it's shitty that like i am looking for like a who fuck did this <laughs> like <laughs> who is responsible for this <laughs> It, it seems like the, the arc of the whole show would have to be planned out so precisely, though. You know, it's yeah. almost hard for me to believe that, like, the individual writers of the episodes would have any kind of, like, overarching plot say. But, I mean, maybe they do. I have no idea. But it seems like that almost seems mind-boggling because, like, wouldn't it just have to be, like, planned out, the whole scope of it, so, I don't know, into such specific terms to make it all make sense um but yeah I will certainly agree that I would I thought the writing of the first four episodes I would say the writing was strong and the plot arcs were strong and I didn't feel the same way on this one yeah and it it sucks because like the character the actors and actresses are fucking nailing it like they're all doing such an amazing job like um I really like I felt for Steppen the whole time I was like he's making me cry Mm -hmm. my own tears like this is so (laughs) emotional like you really feel like he lost her um but it's not the Steppen show like why are we doing this like nothing fucking happened with Rand the entire fucking show like he basically didn't do anything um we learned that Steppen's is the only plot which really goes any anywhere it seems yeah all the subplots other than the conversation with Matt and Rand when they're watching Logan, where they Matt says like you know if we go fucking crazy can you like make sure we don't mm. turn out that way like that's kind of the only hint that anything is really going on with the two of them besides like the physical you know and then Matt like punching a baby while they're walking but it's just <laughs> like I don't know it's just kind of frustrating because I feel I just feel like this is uh we've reached like okay the first half of the first season so fucking good and now it's just gonna go downhill because it's like uh, you know they they I think it was Dan that was like holy shit we're in Tarvalon already like what the fuck <laughs> like we're they didn't even <laughs> we have make three it. episodes left yeah like they didn't even <laughs> make it to there in the book so it's just I'm ready to be disappointed <laughs> but then also to just move on to the the second book and there are lovely moments in here. I think, like you said, the stuff with Steppen, uh, where he do- he does a really good job with it. Um, something you were saying about Rand. Oh, keep me. Yes, yes. Oh, I I love the reunion of Rand and Nynaeve, and Nynaeve, yeah. uh, and just that. I I found that like really heartwarming. Like that, and 
and her just immediately being like, she is still, she's 100% naive. Everyone in the tower is trying to pull her into their machinations already. We already get the sense the Ajas are going to be fighting over her. There's Moraine and Leandrin paired off of, of Moraine. Like the moment she gets to the tower, Moraine takes her into a room and is like, this is a nest of vipers. Everyone here has an agenda. Don't trust anyone. Don't leave the room. Listen to me. And and 90's like, you haven't given me the most amazing reasons to trust everything you say. But Nynaeve's confidence and her love for Rand and his and his uh, love for her, like just this deep familial bond you feel almost immediately that um, is kind of compressing. I think that's a moment of good compression where we have so many scenes of Nynaeve chasing after her charges in the books or, or Rand or the others thinking about what she's up to or the others are up to. But this that that reunion moment for me was a really good um, way of, of like really feeling, yeah, the Two Rivers folks are still in it together here and Nynaeve is going to go to hell and back to do whatever she has to do to protect everyone. And of course, she's not going to turn Rand and Matt over to the Aes Sedai the moment that she hears that Matt might be able to channel, which to me is just, yeah, I, I really I really liked getting that bit in there. I even liked uh, when just when she said, like, we're the Two Rivers people, just because in the in the book, like that gets said so many times. but if you were just watching the show there's just so much less time to feel that bond um Mm -hmm. but yeah like in the book i mean we could probably say there's like a hundred times where it says the two rivers kids the two rivers folk but i i liked how that she actually used that phrase and it kind of like ah yes they are they are united and I'm also happy that it was like hard cut from like Leandrin being like, oh, there's the fucking library. You should believe me and go that way. And then it's like, <laughs> bam, she's kicking down the door for Rand. Yep. And I was like, thank you. Thank you so much. Because it's like, yep. you know, fucking with a 10 foot pole, don't believe <laughs> damn thing Leandrin says. <laughs> like, oh my God. So I'm so happy. But also again, Morgane, where the fuck is Nynaeve? You're supposed to be like keeping track of these people and she's off with them. <laughs> Like I don't, it felt like a weak episode for Morgane, stronger for Nynaeve and Stappen, apparently. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, and and I am, I think Zoe Robbins. We've praised a lot of the actors. I think she's just nailing it. Yeah, um, as Nynaeve here, and her and Daniel Henney paired off against each other, like just. Yeah, I'm whatever else. I, I've been thinking this episode a lot of times, especially seeing Loyal had me thinking. God, I, I wish this were just an animated series. I feel like it would be so much more able <laughs> yeah. to do the things it wants to do as an animated series. But on the other hand, I don't want to lose almost any of these like live action performances, the things that these yeah. that these this cast is doing with their with their faces alone and with the, their interactions in the scenes. Um, I'm I'm really loving what they're bringing to the table. Uh, and, and yeah, and even speak like the perfect casting of Leandrin as just I think uh, she gets described at at some point. Um, I think I forget who sees her first in the novel, but they kind of describe her as being composed of more hard edges that uh, than than it would seem possible for a hum- for a face to hold. And and like no shade on this actress who she is beautiful, but uh, um, but the yeah. the moment you see her face and her like hair pulled back in, in this braid, she's got like a jaw that could cut glass, and just <laughs> yeah. and, and her eyes just have this I am up to no good uh, like piercing like see into your soul and ferret out. Your secrets quality of you are going to to serve me someday whether you know it or not kind of <laughs> a vibe going on like real like just leaning into the role chewing the scenery i i was gonna say even i feel like she does something intentional with like her jaw and her lips she like yes. purses them or something like when she finishes a phrase and i'm like oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah like you totally believe that there's something fucked up <laughs> 
<laughs> like that she is totally evil. I think I even said it because I was like live tweeting or live messaging in chat <laughs> as I was watching the episode. And I was like, oh, here comes fucking Jawbone Sedai, <laughs> Father 90. <laughs> like, yeah, Kate Fleetwood is the actress's name. And she, yeah, she's fucking nailing it. Like she is absolutely doing a great job. It's like, it reminds me of... um George R. R. Martin telling uh, the actor that plays that little shit. I don't remember his name, but basically saying, Joffrey. Like, yeah, like saying, or, yeah. if the entire world hates you, you're doing your job. <laughs> and I was like, yep. yes, there is no way in hell you're going to tell me that Leandrin is a good character. Fuck her. No. <laughs> so, and nobody's falling for it. Like you said, that's no. like the best part that our characters are smart enough to be like, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, it's like that. those little subtle hints of like, you know, that's not how roads work. And like, you know, shit like that, calling it out. And instead of... You know, I'm very used to horror movies where they're like, don't fucking go down that way. That's the murder. And they're like, I have to see for myself and then get murdered. And, and mm -hmm. Nynaeve is just like, fuck you. I'm going to go find the people I'm with. So I thought that was really cool. I did have a question, though. Morgane is in the room with Alana and they're talking. And then Alana leave. Mm -hmm. And Morgane goes over and like opens something on the wall. And it's like a painting or something. What the fuck was that? Mm. Are we supposed to have any idea what that was? I have that scene before. For me, uh, I just opened the show in the browser. Okay, she's examining the wall. Okay, quick quick side piece. People keep getting into bed with boots on in this episode, and it was driving me crazy. Like, Moraine gets into bed with her riding boots on. Rand or Matt does it. It's like, I think Lan even... Everybody's getting into bed with their disgusting road boots on, walking through, like, shit on the streets <laughs> well, and, and riding what is, horses. And, what is uh, the significance and, uh, of boots? Because they, they point that out twice with the Aes Sedai. They show... Kareni's horse and her boots are in the fucking stirrups even though she's not oh. there and then um when Morgan is talking to to Lan about where is home she says home is this horse it's these boots it's being with you right oh yeah it's, it's a like motif. A, yeah it's again this thing with the boots I thought the boots on the horse was fucking weird looking and didn't really understand weird. that I felt like but... it was it was denoting that the Aes Sedai had died like that just to mm. me it seemed yeah. like that must have been some kind of ceremonious indication that like if you if your horse comes home with just your boots it means you died but that yeah it's weird um, yeah and Alana is barefoot in the bed beside um Moraine I don't know if oh, that okay. has any significance whatsoever beyond the fact that she, uh, Moraine points out that oh also you're eating in my bed is this gonna is this your new dining <laughs> dining room or something but you get the sense they're very very close have this yeah. sort of dorm sisters at one point thing going on I think we found out from <clears throat> last episode okay so I have a freeze frame of the painting so she goes over it's got like this gold uh, leaf thing around the edges uh, this is at 51 minutes and 50 seconds into the episode pretty close to the end um, and it's got like a door she opens and it's a the back of a woman in a blue dress staring out an open window in a castle or a tower. And the way that she is framed, it's almost like she's like, it's like this re like um, infinite regression thing where Moraine is like standing there in a blue dress staring at the painting in this little door frame, which is a woman in a blue dress staring out the window, which is the shape of the painting like through. Uh, and then out the window, you can see in the distance another window uh, that is being looked through out on another tower maybe or something. So there's something about, I don't know, they're trying to set up some sort of image here. It's too brief. Like the camera's only on this for like two or three seconds of this infinite regression thing of Moraine staring at what, you know, symbolically it doesn't look like her, but it could be her own back here. Uh, I don't know. Uh, and then like down the row of like woman staring at woman staring, like staring through a window, out a window, out a window kind of thing. I don't know. Um, interesting that you call that out. That, that was a strange little completely unexplained moment. Yeah, there were there were a couple unexplained things. So it's like, 
am I supposed to know what the fuck that means? Are you ever going to go back to that? Was that just like, so mm-hmm. like, and I, even in the subreddit, I mean, I didn't spend a lot of time because I was getting spoiled for shit, but um, I didn't see anyone mention it. Everyone was focused on a uh, loyal character. And so I just didn't, I didn't know if anyone knew what that was. Is that something that's part of the books? But it doesn't sound like it. It is extreme foreshadowing, um, but so cryptic that I like, I didn't even, I, like I thought about in the moment in the episode, but I'd forgotten about it. So you brought it up again and going back and looking at this frame of like, oh yeah, I know exactly what this is okay. uh, alluding to. Uh, so it will come back, but it is the most, it is a very subtle flourish. And this is not a subtle show usually in particular. Although apparently this episode is because you informed me, Keely, from, from Reddit as well, that Patton Fane is like randomly in the background <laughs> of a scene in this episode, completely uh, uncalled out. And there's, that's his whistle that we get at one point, which I had totally forgotten. So I'm just missing huge. Oh, wow. No huge, way. Um, what? What scene did that happen in? Do you remember? Yeah, when Matt and uh, Rand are sitting up on the thing watching out for Loghain, Matt, Uh. they're showing Matt and then Matt looks out in the crowd and in the Mm -hmm. bottom left, Patton Fane is sitting in like what I think is probably like a storefront and he Mm. like looks up at Matt. It's like, I didn't notice he was there. So when he shows up next, it wouldn't have any fucking impact on me because I don't know what, like, I don't know, we don't know anything about him from the show. Like the show, he shows up, he's being kind of a dick to to Matt. And then, you know, the Trollocs show up and Mm -hmm. he just fucking bounces. And then we don't have him for the next four episodes. And now you like subtly sneak him in. It's like, if someone hadn't said that, like if I hadn't saw that in the subreddit, I'd have no idea. And then the next time he shows up, be like, well, where the the fuck you been this whole time? (laughs) Like, what are you doing yeah it's amazing someone even caught that (laughs) it's it's so that is such a subtle thing that it almost feels like an easter egg yeah but the way the episode has been kind of ham-fisted and like not particular this episode does not feel well crafted to me as a piece of filmmaking so i'm wondering if that was meant to be clearer or they expected more people to pick up on it rather than being this like where's waldo moment of like one brief flash and you um and you missed the the pad and fame there because I, I will say this is the episode more that the more than anything that had me thinking this show cuts too much and too quickly and so sometimes i just don't even know why we're going from one scene over to another character sometimes it's really poignant and great like in the last episode or you get like a real like sting moment like when somebody somebody says something about wait a minute there's five not four hard cut to Logan's face uh in the <laughs> In, in the room there or whatever. But then other times I'm just like, why are we cutting? I have no idea. We weren't finished that conversation yet. That scene is still going. Why are we jumping back and forth? And maybe I've just like settled into the languid, probably too slow pace of the novel where we're in the chapters and chapters at a time. But I, I often felt like some of these episodes would benefit from just make this the Perrin and Egwene episode, just make this the yeah. um, the random mad episode. Maybe I, well, in this episode, I guess just wants to be the, the Steppen episode, um, whom we've barely talked about still because it ultimately doesn't matter to the plot, though it matters very emotionally for Lan at this point. Well, we know it can't matter to the plot of the Eye of the World very much because Steppen doesn't show up on screen in in Eye of the World. Um, And we learn, you know, sort of obliquely the stuff about warders, but it is very, yeah. uh, And I guess we even haven't said it aloud. He kills himself at the the end after everybody trying to reach out for him, uh, reach out to him. Everybody's trying to look after him and like knowing he's in a really dangerous spot because of having uh, lost uh, Karaini and and he's in this, um, you know, like having part of his soul carved out as he put it like nobody can understand he, he says that what what this feels like um and through that we get a little a lot of little spiritual moments that are also moments of world building he's lighting these candles at one point to ward off the 13 forsaken haven't heard their names very much but the the channelers who 
sided uh, with uh, from the Age of Legends who sided with the Dark One, we're told here, for the promise of eternal life and power beyond imagination. And they were supposedly sealed away by by the dragon, by Luz Theron, in that last fight at Sheol Ghoul. But people still like do these prayers and like warding rituals to keep them from reaching out into the world and, and touching things. And affecting things. Hmm. I wonder if that'll have anything to do with uh, with our nightmares that, Keely, you pointed out, have kind of uh, once again faded into the background and disappeared, like for as prominent a plot element as they are in the novel. Like those dream- every time they go to sleep, we get one of those dream sequences. Um, we've had a couple here and we get flashes of Baalzaman very briefly in this one. Yeah. And it, I'm kind of bummed about the dreams because they did make it such, there was such like a progression where they started having the dreams and then they you reach the point where all of a sudden- Rand is actually injured when mm-hmm. he wakes up and it's like, oh shit, like, you know, the dark one can, can he's getting closer. He can actually impact you. And now it's just like not a thing. Um, Like, and it was weird because they started off hard with the dreams where like the bat, like him pulling the bat mm. out of his mouth. Oh yeah. So gross. And then Moraine being like, who's fucking having dreams? <laughs> like share this. And then <laughs> they just never talk about it again. Um, something else I was gonna oh so they talk about Morgan is thinking about well what if I break the bond or can we break the bond what would mm-hmm. that even do like how does would that remove all of their memories with the Aes Sedai like uh, I don't understand how that could be necessarily a good thing to prevent pain unless it removes memories I, th- I think she wants to prevent Lan from experiencing her death in that way as this like utterly scarring like the most traumatizing thing that could happen to a person kind of as it's as it's put here like and we get ex- i don't I forget if they explicitly explain it here but when it's explained in the book and maybe what you were remembering katie in terms of like the warder dies when when the eyes Sedai dies is that they experience the whole death they experience the sensation of dying and then it's like they have died and are still living it's like the sense that they're just like shuffling on with with part of their soul gone and having experienced the moment of death in a way that maybe she thinks if she can spare land that trauma or before she dies or before anything like that happens because she doesn't want it to happen. Um, and we get these kind of glances between her and between her watching land and um, and uh, and Nynaeve and things shaping up there and Steppen and the other warders are also commenting on land and Nynaeve to where I think it's all you also get the sense that is Moraine wanting to step out of the way like uh, that so that he that land can be happy in some way and it's like that he can have a life that is not dragged with like she I, I think she knows she is she is like you know riding into Mount Doom from her perspective seeing all these things happen to Steppen and Karaini and is really and she's also shaken in her own way by what just happened to Karaini and we see you know at the funeral one of the rare like really over like large displays of outward emotion from her large huge display from Lan which I don't know how much is part of this this um very different funeral ritual than re- that we're treated to here from the earlier one that I wasn't sure what to make of of what this very long funeral dirge scene with the Mongolian throat singing and and the and then the chest thumping and whatever whatever it is you, you suggested I think Keely that may, that maybe Lan is supposed that this is a ritual of like I don't know taking on the pain somehow I don't know who this lead warder is um mark mark fletcher um plays him there yeah the thoughts on this uh this this is the closing sequence of the show here i think the for the episode that i just didn't i i didn't understand the symbolism of it i don't know what what i was supposed to be taking from it because the lan is kind of in the front and the whoever that guy is tells him like put your hand on step it and so he puts his hand on him and then they start the chest pounding and then he screams and rips his shirt off and i don't what was i supposed to take from that 
Like the dude's dead. I don't like. I don't understand <laughs> what. Yeah. Unless, like I think we talked about like what was their relationship? Why is it him? Is it because they were really close, like friends? Is it because he was the last person with him alive? Like there's mm. just so much ambiguity there that again it's like okay, well that was something. I don't know what I'm supposed to feel from it. So next next episode, I guess. <laughs> I, I think I said out loud. I didn't know they were so close. Like I yeah, I wasn't, yeah. and thing. I also don't know. I don't know what he was actually doing when he put his hand on him. Was he feeling his pain? Was he lifting his pain? Like it was, I was like trying to guess and I was like, well, it's not clear enough if I can't even kind of come up with a guess. Yeah. I found the experience alienating in a way that I almost want, wondered if the show, if the showrunners or writers um, wanted us to feel alienated for a moment of like, oh, you know, this is a different world than ours. This is a different culture with different rituals, but they didn't like give us an into it. They didn't really give us like much of a way to connect to it, which, so I, I don't know that I like that intention. If that is the intention to say, look how strange this place is. They do Mongolian throat singing and, and do this like, uh, like chest be- beating ritual that doesn't, that doesn't make sense to Western viewers necessarily. But I'd like, I would like more context for it. I'd like a word, a word or two more um, for, I don't know, maybe we will, maybe we'll know next time. I, but I almost felt like even if we find out after the, there was so much passion, like even in the acting in, in the moment yes. in the scene. And I felt it was definitely, lost on definitely. me, the viewer, because I couldn't mm-hmm. connect to it. So like, I couldn't mm-hmm. feel the passion that they were trying to convey because I was just like, I don't know how to connect to what's happening in this scene. And like Lan's just yeah. like massive emotion was lost on me. Yeah. And I felt I, very similar. Yeah. And like, I just pulled up the episode to see what the guy actually says. And he says, lay your hand on him. Relieve us of our grief. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> like, what is, I still like, is he supposed to be pulling the grief out of, mm-hmm. but then why does it relieve us of our grief? I guess he's like, doing the wailing, the dirging for them, like somebody hired at a funeral, like a, like at a shiva to cry, cry like really dramatically, um, or or at a wake or or something. Like I I I I believe this is a thing in in some traditions. So maybe he's meant to be doing it, but it seems like so. Yeah, maybe he's doing it performatively, but it also does seem like it's raw emotion. But yeah, I feel the same thing. I don't really because I don't know what to make of it. I found it hard to connect to, despite uh, despite Daniel Henney's like really, you know, he's 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 acting his heart out here as much as he can. Seems like real crying and real um, like real emotional trauma. But I just don't even know why he's feeling it because I got the sense I I had thought they were more like passing colleagues. I didn't not that they were best buds for all these years or or something even closer man i don't know i didn't know what to think same thing um well uh katie you have to jump off i believe so uh so we'll say farewell real quick and ask where can people find you on the internet you can find me at katiejarvis.com or on instagram at 30 in la and keely where can people find you on twitter or instagram at keely underscore this episode of Wattcast was produced by yours truly. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Caleb Wimble. And remember, you can find all of us and links to everything we do at wattcast.net. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Wattcast Podcast. And again, support the show at patreon.com slash Wattcast. Once again, big shout outs to our new supporters this week, Anonymous and Trevor Fail. Your support means so much. Hope you enjoy those bonus episodes you're getting access to. And if you're listening, folks, and want to hear those, you know where to do it. Join the White Tower, despite what you may have heard about its occupants this week. (laughs) Uh, You could also support us by leaving Wattcast a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. This means a lot, and it's the number two way we find new new listeners. The number one way is to tell a friend about the show. Word of mouth means the world to us. That is all for today. 
Thanks so much for listening, folks. We'll be back next time with episode six of the TV series and the next five chapters of Eye of the World, which are chapters 41 to 45. I say very slowly, not having it in front of me, but yes, I believe 41 to 45. Either way, it's the next five chapters. We're getting right near the end of things. The book will be finished soon. But remember, this is not the ending. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the wheel of time. This is just an ending. Farewell. Oh man, I did have a lot of extra notes that we did not get to on here. Any of yours we wanted to go to, we could toss them in on on the post pod on there. Um, Uh, No, I think the only thing that I was kind of wondering was, you know, can Warder sleep with other people? But then mm. isn't Nynaeve, aren't they hoping that she becomes an Aes Sedai? Mm. So can a Warder, I mean, we know that a Warder can go from one Aes Sedai to the other, but can they sleep with another one? (laughs) Mm. Good question. Well, and can they even go from one Aes Sedai or another if they don't know how to break the bond? Right. I guess um, it would It would only be if one died because they did. he did say that he was invited to be a green one um, and then he ends up dying. Ste- Steppen or? Oh, yeah. yeah so I thought, for a second, I thought you meant Lan and I'm like, oh, no, no, Steppen. Steppen, yeah. Um, and then I just, the one scene, I think one, I was bothered by a couple of the scenes, but when the um, Children of Light show up with the um, the Tinkers and he turns his head and is like, you fucking guys and points at Perrin and Equaine yeah, and Aram yeah. <laughs> and they like cartoon like oh shit like try to hide I was like that was the most delayed trying to hide he is clearly seeing you you guys are so fucked so that was just kind of like a weird okay but why are, are they fucked again in that moment I was like wait a minute didn't he like just let them keep traveling on before what is he uh, like what I, I I was not sure in that minute I must be forgetting something I'm like why is he immediately like oh my god dark friends it's like you you met them on the road before and let them keep going i think maybe he was just suspicious of them and then he saw them with a different group and was like oh they must be there must be something wrong with them like why are they with two different groups but how does that even make sense when everybody in the world is like migrating right now and (laughs) displaced by war and they were refugees that they were supposed to be refugees from war themselves right like like moraine was playing a noble whose house has fallen and they're trying to get away from gildan and everything and get to Camelin or Tarvalin? I, I don't even. This was. It was just. There were so many moments like that where I'm like, okay, I guess this is happening. I don't really know yeah. why, but yeah, I'm not really sure. And one of the things that did, like, I was sharing the trivia that pops up 
as it as the show plays and one of the things was that um you know they mentioned the dog uh and it's like you know the dogs kill things and then that's mm-hmm. you know how they get meat or whatever um but one of the trivia things was said that they train the dog to not attack and so that's how they get away with having dogs so like yeah they can go mm-hmm. after food because they're dogs and you know that's what they do they need to eat but they they the dogs are specifically trained not to attack other people um which they don't really say in the in the show i mean they only show oh, yeah. like the two dogs um but yeah i don't really know they also didn't like maybe he knew that they weren't who they said they were because remember when they originally met them and he the the like leader guy was like okay you guys head this way and he was like no i'm gonna go this way like indicating that he was gonna go the direction that he thinks they actually came from um because morgan sure i remember morgan tells them when they first meet like oh we came from this direction and this is where we're from and then the uh the leader of the children i assume he's the leader like the main guy is like talking to child balad or whatever his name is and it's like okay you guys should head this way mm-hmm. and he specifically says like no this is my job i will decide where i go i go a different direction right I think I completely wiped the scene from my memory. (laughs) So I don't know. Like, is that supposed to be linked? Did he somehow travel? But like, did he travel down to the, like, where did he go? Did he travel to the two rivers? Did he make it to the the ferry crossing? Like, they're just, there's so much that they're not explaining. Yeah. And that's a huge distance too. How did they get back? They're just like teleporting across (laughs) this enormous world that just took random at a month to walk from the mining, like basically from the mining town to Tarvalin. This the logistics felt so off here, or so confusing. Anyway, maybe it'll become more clear. Another oh, another uh, I think Dan's friend mentioned um, major iconic book thing that seems to have been left out for budgetary reasons. The the color shifting cloaks that the warriors yeah. have didn't they allude to it at some point in the show? But we just don't ever see their camouflage cloaks uh. as like their distinctive thing. That you know that's a warder because they've got a they've got a samurai sword, but also their cloak is a chameleon magic thing. <laughs> I don't remember. I just remember it being such a big part of the book um, that even, yeah, because it's it's the three like main cloaks is the one that the Fade has that doesn't move in the wind, the mm-hmm. color changing ones of the warders, and then Tom. Um, that right, he which give, he doesn't really have. Right, that <laughs> he ends up giving to Rand, who Rand then shows the innkeeper as further proof that he knows yep. Tom and that something happened to him. So I don't know. I'd like to know why they're picking and choosing the shit that they are. Wraith, mm-hmm. based on his um, AMA, seems really really excited for stuff to come um but i don't know yeah i don't i'm hoping it's not all downhill from here like i'd like that they you know save the best for the last and that they're going to bring the last couple of episodes in you know it's just i feel like you know it, it is a short season but one really wonky episode out of eight would not be the worst outcome um no if it came down to it it does feel like you know there was so much hype or maybe just in my head about the the trollocs and you know that like oh well we ended up loving what they look like so we took the budget and we did other things with it and then now it's like they put all of their attention and detail into the trollocs and the like town like the buildings yeah tarvalin looked pretty cool i thought it it, it was a pretty Mm -hmm. neat uh depiction overall even though you can tell it's obviously cg when the camera goes back and you see it at day or night it still looked pretty neat i thought yeah it just feels like they're picking and choosing what to focus on and like obviously didn't focus on loyal didn't focus on making their you know their teeth gross because everyone has like immaculate teeth for what they're going through oh yeah um, i kind of just accept that as a hollywoodism at this point yeah but every, every, yeah <laughs> 
um, I don't know. It's just, it's weird. I think they did show, though, I noticed that Perrin did look like he had, um, like, desert dust or something all over him. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it was the lighting, but it looked like he did. So it's like, okay, they are making them look kind of gross for being out for and a long time. back certainly looked gross in that, yeah. uh, that, fl- that knife fling scene. Jesus, that yeah. was so, like, beyond the pale even of the child buyer torture from... The book, I'm like, but he does like cut. Oh my god, that those are like that's not going to heal non like those are like enormous chunks of back taken out. Uh, I guess is something to put in the uh, the episode content warning. That was that was some serious gore for what yeah. the show has had so far. And I, I feel um, like they've had the most gore because the first scene we get with them, they've got the eyes to die burning alive with our hands cut off. Oh, yeah. And then with him cutting his back. And I did read, I'll have to link it. I read um, an interview with uh, the actress that plays Egwene talking about this episode. Um, and something that I who totally... Who is uh, Ma- Madeline Madden, if we haven't said her name before. Yeah. Um, something that she talked about that I completely zoned out because like seeing her being like forced bathed was really upsetting but Mm. um the fact that they brushed out her hair that the braid is such an important part of the wisdom and they brushed out her hair and then put her in this like plain white like shift almost as to like make her almost like born again and like pure and whatever and so yeah um she talks about specifically them forcing the braid to come out and this is the first time that we see her with her hair different oh wow yeah it's like a forced it feels like a forced baptism doesn't it Mm -hmm. symbolically in that and that tying into the history of missionaries doing forced baptism and uh, in the face of local mm-hmm. cultures and making them give up, you know, and like the, the things like in this in, in the U.S. was done to Native Americans where you'd, you'd especially doing to their kids, forcing them to probably similar things with the hair as well. Mm-hmm. I think that was a pretty common practice was like to cut the hair uh, of, of young boys or get rid of the bra- braids in pretty much the similar way. Yeah, I didn't even... I think I was not paying close attention in that scene, and I'm glad you called it out. That is such a like, oh, awful thing symbolically that they're doing to her in this moment, like forcing her into that position and taking away this thing that is a real big part of her identity and culture, mm-hmm. like of the few things we've had established because she's probably gotten the least screen time of everyone lately in in the last couple of episodes yeah and they also pointed out which i did notice but i don't necessarily understand the symbolism of it is that uh they took really good care of her hand um like they they zoom in at one point of him i guess he's like cleaning her fingernails or something um Mm -hmm. and so i don't really understand what that is unless he like does something with the hands because so did did you catch what he said about eyes that eye hands that he cuts them off but i don't i don't really i I guess i missed like what exactly is about the well he he's he says this thing yeah uh that if you're nice to die we'll have to cut you know uh, cut them off it would be ashamed to have to to go there um because he found out even though, though he he gives us this information that i think we get from an Aes Sedai in, in the book at some point, not yet. Um, but he says, the sisters say they they don't need their hands to channel the one power. It's just like something, but it is like a crutch that some channeler or a lot of channelers develop. Like Aes Sedai will, he doesn't really get into the fact that they'll have different styles, but he has sort of found that a lot of them do wind up relying on their hands to be able to weave and to do things with the one power, despite that they don't theoretically need it. And we see that, um, is is that why he leaves hers intact so that she can demonstrate it? But then she doesn't even wind up needing her hands, right? She sort of channels without it, like in, in the face of that, like he may, and I don't know if that's like, oh, he let her know 
that she doesn't need that crutch and that she can, well, I, yeah, like there's, there's probably a less ableist way of saying it, but like, she doesn't need to be able, um, she doesn't need to have this, this motion and she distracts him by pelting a little flimsy flame at him while either she is burning Perrin's bonds or you think that it's like left deliberately ambiguous that Perrin might be burning his own bonds there and channeling along with the the wolf powers breaking out here yeah because I mean they have a habit now of making scenes kind of ambiguous where you don't know what the actual outcome was like with Mm -hmm. Matt not knowing and not being super clear if he actually killed the family or if the Fade did we're not entirely clear if Loghain actually kind of projected like that menacing face at him as he was being paraded through um, the city. So I feel like it kind of, it fits in with that ambiguousness where it's like, I'm not entirely sure what I'm seeing. Is he, is he powerful and we're seeing it? Or is she really fucking powerful and was able to, you know, undo his things. Mm -hmm. And then he just like went kind of wolf hulk and burst out. We don't entirely know what that is. Um, So I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know if they're ever going to clarify any of it at this point, but (laughs) there's, I guess (laughs) there's always a chance. Maybe Rafe will get on another AMA and ask all, all these. Uh, unanswered questions at the end of the season if Hopefully. they haven't gotten to them. Although they are, they're already like knee deep into filming season two, which we talked about in chat. But I don't know if we had mentioned on the show that oh yeah, it's on, it's on the way. They're doing principal photography. They were like halfway through the as of a few weeks ago, apparently. Um, mm-hmm. And talk and some of the cast members talking about the new replacement for uh, for Matt's actor for Barney Harris, the, the whose name oh. Donald Finn is going to be replacing it. Oh, and I think I forgot to call out when talking about Alana. Um, it's Priyanka Bose is her actress mm. that I really like in that role. And I hope we see more of her soon. I'm trying to get better of calling out everybody's names in general. And I was trying to find who wrote this episode since we talked so much about it. Uh, I, I'm not even sure if this is right. IMDb credits Rafe Judkins and Celine Song for this one. Maybe I can find it. Credits themselves because that that wasn't the name I remembered seeing mm. on screen, but I might have. No, uh, and IMD, IMDb is notoriously unreliable. Yeah, I don't remember what the name was. I just it's not Rafe and it's not the the Clarkson duo. It's someone else. Oh yeah, story editors Clarkson twins. Okay, so the writer, the staff writer, it says was Celine Song. Um, but who directed this one? Oh, uh, Sally Richardson or Sally Richardson Whitfeld. Um. Interesting. Yeah, I do feel like I want to now look into who wrote and who directed the individual episodes. But, you know, at the end of the day, Rafe, Rafe is supposed to make sure they're all on the same page with everything. So hopefully we all get back on the same page before the end. Yeah, I'm, I pulled up a, an article talking about season two, and it's basically just saying, you know, what we know that it's, they last said that they're halfway through filming for season two. Uh, season one had one of the biggest launches ever for Amazon. Um, it's most watched series premiere of the year, top five series launches of all time for Prime video which is pretty cool mm. i want to look up and see like what's in the top five um it looks maybe like... bezos will give them a low gear budget for season two for post-production <laughs> i don't know it, yeah it doesn't say really anything more than that just that like maybe it will be end of next year they're not sure when yeah and just that they have not said why they're changing matt but i did see a different interview with rafe where he said that um the new actor is doing a really great job like he, he definitely yeah. thinks that it will be hopefully an easy transition um it's just kind of it's such a bummer the more matt we get the more yeah. you know loving barney harris he's doing so such a great job like his face is so 
emotive you really think that like he's struggling so it's big shoes for the next actor to yeah. to fill i'm phil i'm hoping that he'll be able to do it but i guess we'll same see. yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna try not to hold it against him because they they do do such good casting in general that it's not his fault barney harris turned out to be such a breakout here and uh yeah know, try to be open-minded and the the same article that i talked about where they interview uh madeline madden Egwene, she talks about spending so much time with uh parent the actor uh blanking on his name uh rutherford i think something uh marcus yeah marcus marcus um but just that he is such an incredible actor and she feels like you know she's really able to develop a relationship with Mm. not only parent but also the actor so it's like that's kind of cool that you know at least behind the scenes some of them from what we've been told at least are really bonding and hopefully that will come through in the characters yeah I would I certainly believe it in the first season alone that these are um like yeah like the Nynaeve and Rand stuff and all, and all these moments with them that they are having a good time on set uh hanging out in Prague on on the weekends and living in uh, on their Czech Republic fantasy adventure for uh for months and months and months at a time I wonder how much time I know some of them moved there I think um or got like uh seasonal homes there so I wonder how much time they had in between the shoots even before getting right back to it Ooh, interesting. I just clicked on uh, The Nerdist has done a ton of interviews. Uh, that's where I'm finding all of this. Um, but this one is about uh, Loyal. And it, uh, Judkins says there was a couple key things that went into the look for Loyal. The first was allowing our incredible uh, makeup and effects designer, Nick Dudman, who apparently worked on Harry Potter, to create a look that would not require VFX for Loyal to be on screen. Uh, at our mm-hmm. budget level, having a fully VFX character in the show who's in normal dialogue scenes with the rest of the group is not really possible. We want him to be a core member of the group like he is in the book uh yeah i i appreciate that but i, I mean again i kept thinking like I, I i see better makeup on star trek every week like i'm rewatching a lot of next generation and i know makeup tech has come a long way since then and i know that there are things you can do with a camera uh to to get around this limitation so i fully i fully appreciate the not wanting him to be a cg creature and i and i and i mm-hmm. do like that he's not and that he'll feel more real and personable but ooh, it's going to take me a while to accept the bare minimal amount of effort that has gone into it feels like i'm sure they put so much work into that makeup yeah. but it does not it does not come across that makeup just feels like him he just looks like the actor kind of with some flair like he's at a, a you know a themed party maybe but. Yeah, it's it's harder for me specifically to really think that anyone would be kind of scared of, of him or like taken mm-hmm. aback because he just doesn't seem that big. And like, I mean, no. you know, Jerry, Jerry is my husband is six foot six. So like if the dude is not massive, it's just an average. Yeah. Dude. Like, <laughs> you know, why would he stand out? Um, But it, it is interesting. He says, Judkin says, um, we had people tape from their 20s to their 90s just to see what it felt like with them speaking the word. So they had people audition of all ages to see. Oh, interesting. And then it says our casting director, Kelly Valentine Hendry, and one of our EPs, Marigo Keho, had seen Hamid perform on stage in London in Midsummer's mm. Night Dream and loved him. Uh, the second he came in, we watched it. We knew instantly he was our loyal, which he's definitely the actor is doing an amazing job. Like, I think yeah. his, his voice is, is really deep. And so I do. Yes. Yeah. I buy that he would be like this big imposing character, but physically he's just not that. And I feel like that's 
I mean, we all agree that's kind of a bummer. Like, they can yeah. make Shadowfax look fucking massive. They can mm-hmm. make this dude look massive. Huge shout outs to Kelly Valentine Hendry, though, like who I feel like oh, we've yeah. not actually named as casting director. I'm glad you you did because she is like the un, the probably unsung star of the show. I guess we're singing her praises regularly, but she also was casting director, according to IMDb, for Broadchurch, for Bridgerton, for Fleabag, uh, Gangs of London, which I haven't seen, um, for The Last Kingdom, um, Ghosts, these other shit. I, I feel like she p- hire her people in Hollywood in general. She knows her stuff, <laughs> I think, in terms of um, bringing character actors to the part. Because for all I had big problems with where Broadchurch went after season two and, and onward, like just like incredible character casting across the board. Um, and I think she's doing a great job, it seems, like plucking all these newcomers and relative newcomers out of audiences or out of Shakespeare productions and everything else. Um, that, that is really, I think, far and away my favorite part of the show. If I, I would not hesitate to say the casting. Oh yeah, the casting is amazing. Um, and it definitely, it doesn't. Even the Rosamund Pike is like a main producer or something. It doesn't feel like the Rosamund Pike show. Um, Mm-mm. which I was, I think we were all slightly afraid of at the beginning because of uh, uh, she just had so much dialogue and like she was the narrator for everything. Um, but it definitely feels like you know she's just part of it, and it's not just you know yeah. they brought her in just for the name because everyone else job um but kelly valentine hendry apparently also is part of uh, she's casting director for a new mary shelley movie and oh. i am very much a mary shelley junkie so i'll be interested to see is who's it another in it. frankenstein or uh, yeah it's called mary's monster imdb says mary shelley strikes a faustian bargain with her alter ego as she works on her seminal novel um Oh, I heard of this. Yeah, yeah. It's like a but. Um. Oh wait, I think I saw the trailer for uh, what? It's uh, it's it's Mary Shelley. What, what's the name of it again? Uh, Mary's monster. I feel like I saw the trailer to this the other month. But I, I have a book that, called oh, The Making of Mary's, but that's about the book. So there were trailers for this as far back as 2018, or maybe that's a different movie, Mary Shelley. But there's also one that says Mary Shelley's monster from. So there's a, a crap ton of books that have very similar names. Oh, OK. Um, but there is a horror movie that came out about Mary Shelley herself, right? Um, in 2018. Oh, yeah. I guess it was called just called Mary Shelley. Totally different film. Never mind. Yeah. Um, uh, they do a lot of because I don't know. I don't remember what public it's called. domain. The two. No, the 200th anniversary or something. Oh, it's another good reason. Yeah. Yeah. Mary Shelley's monster came out in 2016. Uh Oh. But not the the book, not the not the new movie. Uh, so this was a drama oh, movie. Uh, oh, Sophie Turner was in it. Interesting from um, Game of Thrones. Sansa, Shelley, Jeremy, Percy, Shelley. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, this is it. Wow, they announced this a long time ago. This I found... so this is a re- remake already. No, I think it just didn't happen. Oh, because this is a Variety article from 2014, and it's got the exact same tagline Jesus. about the Faustian bargain. Because it's yeah, Google's um, very confused. It thinks it came out in 2016. Uh, Tysa, I don't know how to say him, Farmiga, um, who is the not uh, Vera Farmiga, different different. No, Farmiga? it's yeah, it's her sister. Um, oh, okay. Vera does the Conjuring movies, and however you say her name, Tysa <laughs> something like that does American Horror Story. Oh yeah, oh her. I had no yeah. idea they were sisters. Oh, yeah, my God. they're sisters. Yeah, huh? It's listed. I wonder what happened. Yeah, I saw her in something else recently too, besides the American Horror Stories. Yeah, she was in um, right American Horror Story Coven. I remember that. Um, 
girl. Uh, I know I saw her in something else recently, but I'm not recognizing anything on this list here. Interesting, because Sophie Turner, I'm on hers, and the Mary Shelley movie is not on. I don't know what the fuck's happening. She, I'm they, there's photo, <laughs> photos of her in the pre-production here. Um, so if she's not in it, they must have like had to completely remake the movie. <laughs> Which I yeah. don't know. Maybe it was a COVID thing. Maybe maybe they did. Or um, it seems it like it's an... announced in 2004. Hmm. Yeah, that's the same All one right. that I saw because she plays this uh, step her sister Claire. Huh. Interesting. Well, I think that whoever is hiring Kelly should continue to do it because Fleabag yeah. alone was excellent. <laughs> I still need to see that. Oh, oh yeah. my god, it's I've, so good. I've, I've only heard praise for it. I've just seen the trailer. And it's incredible. Scenes. Absolutely recommend it. Uh, but yeah, so I can't believe the show's going to be over soon. I felt like there was so much build up to it and now it's almost done one, but hopefully we'll get some more season two before the first season ends. Are you uh, are you and Jerry interested in the watch party? I don't know if it's too late for you on the East Coast. We we usually can't watch till about six or six thirty here at the earliest, which is like nine or nine thirty uh, Eastern time. That's that's when you usually go to bed, right? Um, uh, normally around ten, because um, Jerry gets up early. Yeah, so. Especially being at Christmas Eve Eve, it might just not be the most ideal time to try to get everybody to watch it at the same time. Well, I'll ask him um, and see if he'd be interested. He's only seen parts of it, but I'm sure up for watching whatever. Yeah, he hasn't watched the majority. He's only seen a couple episodes or like could be really confusing. (laughs) (laughs) Like pieces of episodes. I realized though the um, I knew the actor that played Logan, and I was like, oh, that's why he looked familiar. He's in um, Money Heist. We watched the first, I think it was the first full season of, is it hmm. called Money Heist? Looks like it, yeah. Um, Alvaro Morte? Yeah, because it's a totally, oh. I think it's Spanish, and then there's English subtitles. Uh, yeah, he's a Spanish actor, soon relocating to uh, Bujalance, Cordoba. Yeah, it looks like most of what he's done. I, yeah, I don't think I've seen any of these. I've seen ads for Money Heist, but I don't. Most of his other show names are in Spanish on Wikipedia, which I, su- I assume means they haven't really gotten a mm-hmm. English language subbed release yeah we we weren't super into it watched you know the first couple episodes at least um and it just didn't really click um i don't know oh i think eric actually started this yeah and he fell off as well right it's on netflix which probably mm-hmm. means there was a dub for it which i can't stand on live action oh but, yeah but er- eric can't stand subtitles oh really um, although he- yeah, although he does speak Spanish, so he might have watched, like, usually oh. that's the one exception he'll make. We can watch Spanish stuff with subtitles, so most of the foreign films we watch are Spanish films, because I hate live-action dubbing. It drives me crazy. Like, I, yeah. I like the mouth's not lining up, and it just, the actors are never right. I can, I like it for animation. Uh, mm. It's fine there. It doesn't bother me, but seeing somebody's voice come out of their mouth that's obviously not their voice and missing so much of the nuance of what they're saying doesn't cut it for me yeah we normally just do um like subtitles uh and then i i never dub i've tried doing dub for anime and i can't (laughs) i have to do subtitles yeah (laughs) there was um one punch man i think Mm. on hulu had either dub or sub episodes and i had to do the sub every time because the dub was such crap like Oh, I thought I, I remember liking that one. I saw it both. Oh, really? And, and yeah, yeah. I thought they got the gist of it. It, it just was, it bothered you, though. That and also I think Attack on Titan had a couple. I think I tried watching dub. Oh, my God. And it's just the voices just don't. They're not as dramatic as I need them to be for anime. Except for Aaron, who just never stopped screaming. And because we went back and forth, like we'd see one season sub because and because it wasn't out in English yet, and then we'd see one dub. Uh, Whether Japanese or English voice actor, Aaron is just drives me crazy in those first couple seasons he only screams he only communicates in 
top of his lungs, hates everyone at all time. That is oh. the main character, right? Aaron. Uh, at first, anyway. I don't remember Aaron? his name. It's uh, been a while since I've watched. But then you must fucking hate. Um, oh my god, what is it? There's a. I think it's on Prime Video. There was an anime I started watching, and they just scream the whole time. Let me see what it's called. I think it's got Doctor and Doctor Stone. No, I haven't even heard of it. It's uh It got recommended to me, and so I started watching it. And it's about like a post-apocalyptic something happened, and it turned everyone to stone. Uh, but this mm-hmm. the main character breaks out. And then he has to figure out kind of like why it happened. And he's like a chemist or a scientist. So he's just really fucking arrogant. And um, the, co- the cover art, I'm like, these characters look a lot like the Yu Yu Hakusho characters. And I didn't make it through season one all the way because I just got so uh. angry at them fucking yelling the whole time. <laughs> Endlessly. Well, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, it's uh, Taiju is the the like next character. There's, I think, um, Senku is the main character, I think, and then Taiju. And Taiju's obsessed with this one girl that he goes to school with. And so... Mm-hmm. Like, he finally decides he's going to tell her that he loves her, and then everyone turns to fucking stone, and then he breaks out, and he has to go find her body in stone, and so it's just like the over-the-top in love with her but you don't really know that much about her and so he's just screaming the whole fucking time and it's like that's a little much for me <laughs> i mean that all sounded compelling until you said the screaming endlessly part oh the whole yeah way. Some, i mean I, <laughs> some good I, fun drama i made it there i think like half of season one there's only 12 episodes i think um and i was mostly enjoying it but then also jerry has no tolerance <laughs> for most mm. anime that he just can't take the kind of over the top um so he commented a couple times like what the fuck is that like why is he screaming the whole time um and so i just i moved on to demon slayer and then that's what i've been watching which it sounds like you're liking a lot more yeah after his younger sister nezuko is turned into a demon yep that oh sounds God. like the be- beginning to a shonen series all right it's so fucking good and then there's uh, the first season is on netflix and then on hulu is um i don't really know if it's like a companion season um but it, it hmm. takes place specifically on a train um but it's about demons and nezuko his sister is so fucking adorable she's a demon that he carries around with her like a little thing on his back and it's just really fucking good i bought the funko pop of the main character <laughs> Because it's so good. She is a cute design. Yeah. I'll I'll add it to my fucking enormous list of anime I haven't gotten to yet this or tv shows in general there's just so much stuff to watch now yeah i end up going back to the same shit like the only thing i'm on top of is demon slayer and british bake-off because that season just ended although they did just release the the two new holiday episodes so i have to watch those this weekend Mm. and then we're almost done we have a couple more episodes left of the great season two and then yeah um, we, we we had a lot of fun with the first season i need to watch it's uh, so that good it's, uh, it's it was very funny i thought um yeah season and, uh, two is amazing we're have you caught uh we're in the middle of or nearly finished i guess arcane the first season on yeah ne- netflix um just really well animated for a tv show i, I was very skeptical at first because i don't like cg animation in general mm-hmm. i don't think it ever looks as good as hand-drawn but they do such a good job with the texturing and everything um although for the first couple episodes i was like wait a second this does not this doesn't feel anything this feels way less like a league of legends show than a dishonored show mm-hmm. like the dishonored games if you or jerry have played yeah Jerry's any of those them. like the same vine of, of same like vibe of duskfall and the same kind of art style going on with that very painted on look and texture to, to all of it mm-hmm. um although i felt i felt like they were gay baiting hard with victor and jace who every wow. shot with them in the younger episodes it was like 
extre- they kept they it, every shot was like extremely ro- like instantly romantic and they kept saying things that sounded like sex jokes like and it kept talking about cranking it which was very funny <laughs> uh and and there's like this really tender scene where where he's like oh you know as your um as your assistant or whatever and he's like no as my partner uh like, mm-hmm. like kind of thing and it all seemed like all that and then they and i think they're still baited, they're still indicating it because they go to adulthood and they frame that scene where he's having sex with the uh the other counselor who's been like trying mm-hmm. to get him to go down the path of, of capital gains and and, and 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 reap the corporate benefits and 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 uh and corruption for yourself um even though she seems pretty cool otherwise um and it's, and it frames the scene of them having sex with with victors having a heart attack scene as like they're, they're like they're literally killing him by cheating by cheating on him kind of thing um but I will say my uh, it's been like really fun to watch like and they they just like the nail the look of the whole thing. I really like all the episodes where they're young. Mm-hmm. But for after the time skip, all the older characters feel less mature. They feel more childish and cartoony to me, which I think is because like it, it was strange at first. I'm like, why did they all get why are they less like adults? Why are they more like petty, petulant children and, and more easily corruptible and, and, and all this? It, it seems like the way the show is portraying them. And I kind of felt like, oh, it's because they have to become their video game personas now. And mm-hmm. Jinx has to be this like I thought way over the top, like, oh, I, I have I have uh cartoon schizophrenia and I'm, I'm like teleporting like all over here and I'm just crazy like uh like um like pyromaniac because because my sister abandoned me when I accidentally killed a bunch of people she loved um uh, which is you know it's like all very traumatic but it's still I don't I don't know I haven't and Jace is just suddenly seems more of more petty and more of an I, I don't know I don't like any of the characters as much now that they're older I'm hoping <laughs> I've I'm hoping that'll get. Oh, except for Vi, Vi still seems to be. Is it Vi who's the pink-haired one? Who's yeah. the initial main yeah. character? Okay, yeah, yeah. Vi still seems like she's got it together, and it seems like we are going to have a relationship with her and Caitlin, the 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 rich but good cop, the one good cop uh, as she's being set up. Is that who it is? Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's um. The? Katie. Oh, I don't know how to say her name. Katie Seca? Lou. No, Katie Lou. Oh, no. Who she played uh, Cho Chan in Harry Potter. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then Haley Steinfeld huh. does buy. Um, yeah, the have you played the Borderlands games? A little. I like. I loved Tales from the Borderlands. I don't okay. really like. I don't like the shooters. The, the oh, okay. In the series. I only played the first couple hours of of a few of them. So I know like the main characters. I know Claptrap. I know Athena and some some of the other ones from from those. Yeah. Okay, because Jinx to me is basically just Tiny Tina. Um, yes. And so yeah, I just she, I just yeah. kept saying that that I was like, okay, so she's mm-hmm. Tiny Tina. We fucking get it. Yeah, I thought yeah. her character was a little ridiculous in how over the top she became because like as Powder you could kind of I mean I could give her a, a pretty good pass yeah I, I like, liked powder well yeah enough. like yeah. powder was just fucked from the start like nothing she did was ever gonna work out but then when she became jinx it was like uh, kind of over the top that like she stopped developing the moment that Vi abandoned yeah. her um and then you know of course Silco taking her and, and raising her was not gonna do anything good for her emotional no, no. maturity either but yeah I think you know the the farther into it you get the more you'll like Vi um and then Okay. The relationship between Vi and Caitlin gets really cute. Um, the, okay, good. I, I I was hoping they weren't just baiting with all of that uh, and they pretending. Heavily uh, imply. Um, and then I look at so, so many like 
fan art pages on Instagram. So like my uh, recommended feed on Instagram is all just like fan art of, <laughs> of Vi and Caitlin and then everything from what we do in the shadows. So it's just Jerry's constantly nice. cracking up like, oh, my oh, God. I, oh, my God. I forgot we have did the new season finish. What we do, I totally forgot we have new what we do in the shadows episode. That's been airing lately, right? Yeah, it just wrapped up. Oh, thank God. Yeah. So we can now watch it because we because we only do uh, one month of Hulu a year. We do our trial and we're we're like basing it around. It, it's like perfect timing because last year we did it for just as I think the the great season one came out or last time okay. we did it, it was like we watched we binged the great we binged the first two seasons of what we do in the shadows. We binged Lodge, is it Lodge 47 or Lodge 49? We binged all of Fargo. Like we, mm. we saw like an ungodly amount of Hulu shows in one month, a whole bunch of um, um, document, what's his name? Werner Herzog documentary movies mm. that were on there and like all the, what all the Hulu exclusives, the, the terrible um, or pretty bad Clive Barker um, by blood oh. adaptation they, they did on there. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there's a lot of good stuff and I really, really want to see more what we do in the shadows. Uh, I love that show. It's it's just such such a joyfully fun and funny thing <laughs> every episode. It's so great. So yeah, definitely watch that. Definitely watch The Great Season 2 because that just came out and it's getting really good reviews. People seem to like it more than Season 1. Um, great. I thought I, it was a pretty funny first season too. Oh, the first I, season I was the, great. Yeah. But you know, now moving into Season 2, it's more focused on Catherine and Peter's relationship than it, I think it, it kind of was in the beginning where it was like really focused on her being new and trying to figure out who she is and now she's pregnant hmm. and also still dealing with Peter. Um, I'm so oh, wait oh wait really oh I'm surprised by that because he dies like what two weeks after the coup or something like that uh, she imprisons him he doesn't live very long mis- uh, mysteriously mysteriously dies uh, um, and she definitely did not assassinate or have her generals assassinate him he's still alive IRL. that's so, or you okay, mean it like so, IRL in real life yeah yeah oh I, yeah I, so so where the season one ended I'm like oh he'll probably die the first episode of, of season two I didn't think he was going to be a major character going going forward yeah um, well that's why it, it, that. it says on the title paid like a like a sometimes true story or something like that because yeah, they just like yeah. pick and choose <laughs> um yeah but I think like I didn't expect to care this much about these characters but like you learn a lot more about Velimentov and his relationship with Peter and then uh the crazy ant he's so he's so funny he be, the crazy ant becomes like a massive character even more so than season one and so um whose whose son is the actual heir or was yeah the, she has like him locked up and she like m- makes butterflies like land on her fingers and shit yeah i totally forgot what happened i assume there's a recap with there it. is they, a recap they, yeah they kill him at the end of season one i think he died i can't remember the recap is not wonderful it basically is just like mm. a couple different scenes and it's like you get the gist oh <laughs> like, uh, okay yeah hope you're not confused with the the real history or the other Catherine the Great show on HBO mm. but yeah which yep. is I think trying to be a serious historical oh totally different vibe <laughs> from yeah, this one. yeah um but then what's the other show that Jerry started I think it's on I tried watching Hit Monkey couldn't get into it that's uh there's a show what the hell is it called it's a cartoon and it's basically like what if all the conspiracy theories were true Oh, like um, sort of like Eureka or Area. What was that show that was like Area Fifty One ish? And yeah, but like way what? more over the top. <laughs> like I came downstairs when Jerry was watching it. And I was like, "What the hell are you <laughs> watching?" Because hmm. it was just insane. Oh, what the crap called? Oh, I gotta run. Gizmo's crying to be. Oh. Left, I forgot. I left him. In, left him in the other room. <laughs> um, okay. 
okay. I'll uh, I'll catch you later or catch you on the chat or uh, or next time I guess we we don't have a game night this week right that's not till no not this week next okay yeah all right well but have a great weekend and, you too uh, say hi to you. bye I will bye.